I was better the first time than this time. So. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too as well. Yeah. My brain is truly like human soft serve today, but I do have this stuff. I just realized I have this. Have you tried this stuff? No. What is it? It's called uh, the world's strongest smelling salts. You know when like football players yeah. hit their heads really hard or hockey players get fucked up? They they have these little things they break under their nose and they smell them and it brings them back to life. That's, That's what this is. And then like bodybuilding. This is made by like some power lifter, like the world's biggest power lifter. He uses this. And then he fucking deadlifts like a thousand pounds. Wait, so you just smelled that and that's what that did? Or Woo! Yeah. It just like wakens up your whole nervous system. Jolts you if you want to try it. I'll go give it a shot. With you, Make man. sure you keep it. Close your eyes when you put it on your nose because you don't want it in your eyes. I already smell it. Yeah. And keep it kind of like like waft it. Don't sniff it. Like like loft, like waft it. You know what I mean? It'll wake you the fuck up though. <clears throat> I'm not going to throw up or anything. No, 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 no. Just keep your eyes closed. Woo! <laughs> wow. How do you feel? Uh, weird, man. That was that was wild. Yeah. <sighs> Wakes you up. I didn't think it was that bad. And all of a sudden, it nailed me. <laughs> Good morning. Right. Good morning. Yeah. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Good. <laughs> Woo! Oh, man. Thanks for doing this again, bro. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, for people out there who don't know who you are, uh, give us a little bit of a background on uh, on what you do, what Vetpaw is, and uh, what your background is. <laughs> wow. I'm still feeling that. Um, <laughs> yeah, me too. So my name is Ryan Tate. I'm the president and founder of Vetpaw, which stands for Veterans Empowered to Protect African Wildlife. We are a registered 501c3 nonprofit that deploys U.S., and international combat veterans to Africa to train, advise, and assist in counter-poaching operations and um, assist in conservation efforts to save um, elephants, rhinos, and other endangered species from extinction. And you guys uh, have been established in Africa and uh, fighting the problem with poachers for how many years now? So we were officially founded as a nonprofit in 2014 as an organization in 2013. And we've had a full-time team on the ground, permanent footprint in Africa since 2016 to presently. Wow, man, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. What we've been able to do. Um, so, so what is your military background? Let's dive into your military background and how this all started from sure. the beginning. Like when you first decided to enlist. So I'm a United States Marine veteran, uh, grunt infantryman, uh, served in the Middle East, did some pretty gnarly stuff, um, Southeast Asia as well. Um, originally from Tampa, Florida, um, huge military city uh, with McDill Air Force Base there. Um, but yeah, so I joined the, the Marine Corps in 2003. Um, I, I had wanted to go into the military, I think, my whole life. I just kind of needed to um, get some structure as a young, young boy, young man. And uh uh, I wasn't sure which branch that I was going to go into. I was always interested in planes, boats, Navy, Air Force. And I joined the Marine Corps um, after 9-11. I just said, hey, I want to get to the front lines. It, it really, you know, watching that and the trauma of 9-11 that we all experienced, if, you know, for those of us mm. that were alive and, you know, old enough to understand what was going on. That was, you know, my first real experience with, with trauma. And, um, and so watching that on TV in English class, at Plant High School, um, I had talked my parents into um, signing the paperwork so I could do the delayed entry program and get me into the Marine. So I, I signed my paperwork at twenty, or excuse me, at sixteen, 
And then uh, as soon as I graduated high school in 2003, I went straight to boot camp and and uh, and Paris Island, South Carolina. So you were 16 when that happened in in uh, 9/11. Yep. Wow, I remember 16. that day. I remember that morning too. I was in fifth grade, and they put it on the TV in my class. I can't. That yeah. was like a weird fucking day. But like, so that day, you literally made the decision. You're like, I'm gonna. I'm going to sign up. I'm going to make sure that when I'm ready, when I get hit the right age, that I'm going to enlist. Yep. I, uh, I remember there was a, I was in Miss Rodriguez's English class and, um, there, uh, another teacher came in to the portable and, uh, like you could see it on his face. It was after the first plane hit, but you could see, I, I remember it vividly as I'm sure everybody kind of remembers where they were and, and what was going on that day. But um, I remember him coming into the class and you could, and he was, I, I don't remember the teacher's name. And um, he busts in Miss uh, Rodriguez's portable and he always had this happy, you know, he's a happy teacher, happy guy. And you could just see it on his face like, hey, uh, an airliner just hit the World Trade Center. You need to turn on the TV. And nobody really understood, like, they, I think he just thought that it was, well, everybody just thought that a plane hit it randomly. But you could see it on his face like that, you know, there was something more to it. And we flipped on the TV and what do you know, the other plane um, flies into the, the second tower. Yeah. And it was it was brutal. Like I had no, I couldn't understand what what the hell was going on. Right. Like, I didn't really I didn't understand what terrorism was, um, you know, other than watching, uh, you know, what is it? Die Hard and stuff like that. Yeah. But that that was it. It was like a myth. It was this. Mm. I don't know. But seeing that and seeing people, you know, jumping out of the buildings and, um, it was terrible. And I just saw a bully picking on defenseless people. And, um, I've been bullied, you know, growing up. I think everybody gets a, a taste of being bullied at one point or another in life. Yeah, you should. Yeah, you should. It's good for you. Um, I don't condone it. I hate bullies, but you know, um, it built, builds character. Mm, so. It definitely does. And what, so what made you pick the Marines over like the Navy over army, what all the other different aspects. What, what, what made you choose Marine Corps? Well, I had met some Marines and I didn't know much about Marines. I was in this, like I wasn't ROTC, nothing against ROTC in high school. Those yeah. kids are great, but I was in this like one week in a month thing with, with a Navy program. And, um, they sent us this little boot camp for two weeks. And there are all these retired Navy guys that were being such jerks to us just hazing the hell out of us. But it like in the Marine Corps, when you get hazed in a weird way, it's like, it was just different when the, so that anyways, long story short, these, these active duty Marines that were stationed at McDill came in, man, that stuff really, you're <laughs> still feeling it. Oh yeah. Dude, I'm sorry. Oh. You want another one? No. Okay. No, I'm good. Maybe in a bit though. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> um, so these Marines show up and, I'll never forget it. This guy's name was uh, Sergeant Holloway. And I think he's a Sergeant Major now because I looked him up not that long ago. Um, so he's way up there now. But he pulls up in his blazer, windows down, and he's got Marine Corps running cadence blaring through the speakers. You know, the stuff that we run to mm -hmm. and left, right, left. Yeah. And he's jamming out to it, gets out of the car, his chest is sticking out a little further. His, his sleeves are rolled so tight that, you know, his veins are, you know, pumping. And then here comes these two corporals around the corner and they're in their camis are crisp chests out shoulders are back. And I wanted to, I wanted to be that 
the way that they talked, the way that they presented themselves. And again, nothing against the Navy. Those guys are great. But the way those Marines hazed us versus the Navy, it was a lot harder, but it was genuine in a weird way. It was like, we're going to destroy you in the best way that's going to make you better. Whereas the Navy guys just acted like they wanted us to die. <laughs> you know what I mean, they, they thought we were scum of the earth, but I don't know. It was just, it's hard to explain. Like they didn't want to see any good come out of it. They just wanted to fucking destroy you and smash you into the ground. Yeah. Like destroy all these 16, 15 and 16 year old kids. And these Marines came around and they're like, we're going to destroy you to the point that it's going to make you more confident in a way. Mm. I don't know. It's weird how that works, isn't it? It's weird. Like, like reading David Goggins book, it was fucking mind bending for me. Like it, it really opened my eyes to like how brutal that stuff is, how it breaks your body, your mind at your ego, everything about you just breaks you down. And only like a small amount of people come out of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, some people, rarely people die, but only a very, very small percentage of people actually make it out of that. And like, become a, a, a navy seal yeah, yeah because it's so fucking grueling <clears throat> i mean that's that's literally one of the i mean if not the it's one of the the toughest tests in the world be becoming a navy seal those dudes are, are studs what is the what is the difference between boot camp and the marines okay so boot camp and the marines is just to become a marine not just to become a marine that's the proudest title other than husband that i have um uh, see what I did there? Mm, I like that. <laughs> um, Shout out to your wife. That's right. She's a she's an angel for letting you stay another day and do the podcast. Oh, Lauren's a bomb. Um, you'd probably get more views if she was on here. She's so oh, much yeah? cooler. It's <laughs> the only reason why I have friends. I tell everybody that. It's because of my wife. So if she ever leaves me, so will my friends. But, Same. Uh, <laughs> but no, so that's to get into the Marine Corps. Navy SEALs, you got to go through their, you know, you have to go through Navy's boot camp. And then you've got to be the best of the best just to go to um, you know, their, their, um, selection course, and then only the best of the best make that. So it's, it's a unit within the Navy, whereas the Marine Corps boot camp is in order to get into the Marine Corps. I mean, we have, we have specialty units, you know, recon units, MARSOC units, things like mm -hmm. that. But, um, so that's our level of Navy SEALs. Mm -hmm. And, uh, once you finished boot camp, how long did it take you to get shipped over to where was it? Afghanistan at first, or was it Iraq? Afghanistan. Okay. <clears throat> um, so I went, I first went to Okinawa, Japan. I was like, why not? Let me, let me get out of this, this country and let me go see something cool. Um, I didn't want to go to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. <laughs> it's, it's not a fun place. It's, um, it's very depressing. Why is that? Because it's in the middle of nowhere yeah. and it's only Marine Corps. Oh, okay. Which I love the Marine Corps, but sometimes you want to get away from yeah. what you see every day. Yeah. Closest airport is Raleigh. It's like two hours away. Yeah. It's kind of like if you're going to do something that fucking gnarly, like it's, it's a bonus to be able to travel the world. Yeah. Yeah. And so I did that. And so I was living in a beautiful place and I remember standing in my unit and they always do this. They're like, Hey, we need three volunteers. You don't know what it's going to be. They line you up in the platoon and they say, we need however many volunteers. And not everybody raises their hand. And if you raise your hand, who knows? You could be, I don't know, going and picking up a truck somewhere. Or you could be going to, you know, Europe on a ship. Or you could be going to Afghanistan. And so I had literally been at this unit for a week. Actually, I think three days. And I was one of the youngest guys there. They said, hey, we need... 
we need four volunteers. Boom, raise my hand. And I'm like, what am I going to get? What am I going to get? And Because the last kids, I think, I say kids, the last Marines, because the first day I got there, they did the same thing, and I didn't get picked. They went on a ship to, uh, to Europe. Well, I'm like, sweet, I need to raise my hand. And uh, so I did, and they're like, you're going to Afghanistan. <laughs> but like I was excited. Well, I was excited because I wanted to go, you know, I, I, that's what I signed up for, to fight for my country. And you think that you want to do it, and then all of a sudden when you're told you're doing it, it's like, oh, shit. All right. Life comes at you quick, yeah. real quick. Yeah. And then I remember having to call my mom and tell my mom and she's like so your whole unit's gone i'm like no i raised my hand and she's like what the hell is wrong with you <laughs> um yeah what, what was your like ex what did you have in your mind like how did you picture afghanistan in your mind before you went did you spend time like 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 researching the country and the culture and the land like the landscape or did you just say it's fucking afghanistan there's terrorists there and i'm going like how how was the reality compared to what your perception was i would say it's the latter more than anything um you know we didn't have i don't even know if i had a computer at the time <laughs> you know this is back in 2004 yeah and um <clears throat> wow that was before the iphone 1 yeah <laughs> yeah we had flip phone flip phones yeah it was uh yeah, no, there was no real research. I mean, you can go to the library. Yeah. Watch, you know, Fox News, That's CNN. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, all you get is the fucking TV and the newspaper. Yeah. Actually, I didn't even have a TV at the time because I was living in a barracks. So, I mean, you go down to the common area, the uh -huh. little living room downstairs, but yeah. Wow. So I trained up for that, um, <clears throat> ended up deploying on ship and uh, get to Afghanistan and Congress says we have too many Marines in the country and they pulled our whole ship back out, you know, a few, it was less than 60 days later. Wow. Yep. So you, you took a ship the whole way there and they automatically oh, yeah. reversed, got out of yep. there. Yep. Then what so happened? Then I came back, I did uh, the tsunami, the big 04 tsunami cleanup. Remember the huge tsunami that happened? The first one? Where was it? Indonesia. Oh, yes, yes. That was brutal. Pulling people out of trees. Really? Mass graves. It was terrible. Yeah. How How did you guys, you guys flew to Indonesia, right? Yeah. Yep. And then when you got there, like, what was it like when you first arrived? I mean, it was, it was like a, a nuclear bomb went off. There were cars on top of buildings. Um, Whoa. Nothing. I mean, it, everything was leveled. It was, it was terrible. So you guys were just on a rescue mission. You guys just like set up camp and then you guys, what, like splintered off and into groups yeah. and just tried to rescue people and save them? Yep. Yep. It was terrible. Um, those poor people, what they had to experience. I, I didn't even know what a tsunami was. <laughs> I mean, did anybody really? Yeah, it's different, right? It's different what you what you imagine a tsunami. Like I always imagined a tsunami just being like this giant like 100-foot wave that crashed on the land. Yeah. But it really doesn't look like that. No, it's like, you know, it's like this little, like, low-level, like, surge that just comes in. Yep. It's, not, it's not necessarily like a big-ass wave. No, it's not just a, a quick wave that falls and collapses. It's mm -hmm. just a wall of water that's, you know, a few feet high or six feet high. How long after the tsunami did you guys get there? Uh, Probably a week. I think it was a week. Okay. Yeah, it was bad. And how long did you stay there? Two weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks. Yep. Damn. 
it was bad. Um, and then after that, I, I came back to, um, they switched my duty station to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> excuse me, within, within two months of being there, I got pulled into a, a specialty unit, um, mixed up of a bunch of PT studs, physical fitness studs, and, um, guys that had specialty training, whether it's shooting, um, scout swimmers, all kinds of stuff. They just kind of made this little all-star unit. I don't know how the hell I got picked for it, but I did. And um, and uh, we meshed really well. And within three months, we were off to Ramadi, Iraq. And um, at the time, it was the most dangerous city in the world for it, just period for anybody. It was brutal. Had uh, how long before you arrived in Ramadi were there already troops there? Oh, they had been there for a while. So Ramadi was the last. Uh, last big city that we had to take. So right. in order to get to Ramadi, you had to take Fallujah, and then you can get to Ramadi. Okay. Um, there's some really good books out there on it too. Um, I'm trying to think of the name of the one. This was this sorry a, my my no, ignorance for this whole the whole history of it, but like this was after they got Saddam. Yes. Okay. This was 05. 05. When did they get Saddam? Do you know? That was was it 04? Was it? Okay, so it was close. I wasn't way off. It was close. Actually, it might have been. uh, I remember where I was. I was in in an airport. Yeah, I remember because I I was mentioning before um, Kristen Beck, when she was on here, she she had pictures sitting, like her and like her whole group, they took pictures of each other sitting in Saddam's throne. (laughs) She must have been there a couple years earlier. Yeah, I lived in one of his palaces while I was there too. One of his... uh, his his palace in Ramadi. We dropped a huge JDAM bomb through it, so the whole front of the thing was just Holy blown fuck. up. But the rooms that we were staying in had like gold ceilings. And really? Yeah, it was pretty. And wild. you guys just took it took over the palace and lived yeah. in there. That's yeah. really fucking cool. Yep, bunch of Marines so living in a palace. You guys, what was your guys' like mission when you were there? Like, what was <laughs> you your group's objectives? Like your day to day objectives while you guys were in Iraq. So we were doing patrols, um, presence patrols, um, but there was a really nasty area that the army, because the army was so stretched thin, and uh, there was a nasty area in Ramadi that they asked us to take over, and so we were going in and hitting um, bath party members, Saddam's bath party members that were still hidden and undercover, and then the FBI's most wanted list as well. Yeah. Okay. It was pretty cool, though, because- Hitting uh, them? Yeah, we're going out and getting them. Like just literally going out and capturing people. Yeah, boogeyman. Yep. Yep. That's crazy. That's the stuff you see in the movies, basically. Yeah. Yeah, like the gnarliest shit. Yeah. The first uh the first big hit I did, it's my first time in a combat zone too. I was the point man for a a sixty man mission and we were going to one of the top bath party members' homes. We found out where his home was. And I was the point man. So I was the first man into the compound, into the home, and into every room. It's, wow. it's like Russian roulette. I mean, you can open that door and there could be a bullet hitting you in the face. Um, Suicide bomber. Yeah. And the guy behind you holds your, your flak jacket okay. by the handle. So in case you get hit, he can hold you as a human target. Like a like human a shield. 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 Yeah. And so <clears throat> he's looped in and I go in and I'm so Fuck. amped up. That's... <laughs> I should... <laughs> I uh, I found the guy and I tackled him um, to the ground. Uh, the guy behind me or the the next uh, fire team behind us is holding him down until we take the rest of the house. And I come back around 
And I'm like, I've got zip ties. I pull them out and I, I flexi cuff them. But I did it so tight because I was so amped up that they had to carefully cut it off because the veins here, it was like literally his hands were turning purple. I didn't do it intentionally, right. but I was just amped up. Right. You know, 20 year old kid from Florida is now going after a total scumbag in the Middle East. And, mm-hmm. um, but it was pretty wild. It was, it was a cool, it kind of set the tone for the rest of my deployment. Did, um, were you guys mainly taking people alive? Like, was that the objective? Like to get people captured alive so you could like interrogate them or talk to them and like, so figure they, out, get intel? So when it comes to bath party members, yes. But then there were other targets that wanted dead or alive. Okay. Um, I mean, that said, you don't really, I mean, I know there's a lot of guys from my era that would disagree, but, um, you don't really want to go into a place and escalate force. I mean, you want to dominate that, that, um, that situation uh you definitely want to bring it up 20 times higher than anything else that can be thrown at you but um when you start shooting it takes it to a whole other level and my objective and i I think i speak for most all veterans my objective is to bring my guys home alive Mm. and um shooting being the first to fire is not the way to do that now if you're fired upon then you let hell rain down. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, but no, I mean, I, I, I only fired when, you know, firefights were kicking off. You know, it wasn't going in and just taking somebody down. Yeah. That's unarmed or anything like that. What was like the level of threat with the IEDs being out there, living out there and going on, on missions and whatever it may be? Like how much of a threat were the IEDs? It was the whole area was infested with IEDs. So, and for people who, I mean, people know the term IED, they have a general sense of what an IED is, but can you give us like a technical breakdown of what an IED literally is? So it's an improvised explosive device and it can be planted. It's, it can be planted anywhere. It can be planted under a road next to a road. Um, They can detonate it with pressure plates. They can call it with a cell phone trip wires even um most of the ones that we were dealing with were either cell phones or or pressure plates um we did have some landmines that um we had some brilliant brilliant brass officers that decided they were going to send us on foot to go look for landmines and i'm like that's when i almost lost my shit like i had a staff sergeant pull me aside and he's like hey you need to cut it out and do what you're told but so i did but um yeah that's that's when i'm sitting here like this is just stupid I'm I'm on foot. It's nighttime, and my mission is to go find landmines. What in the hell is going on? Like, how the hell am I supposed to see a landmine at night? Period. And you know what I mean. There's there's units for that. Um, yeah. Anyways, long story short, yeah, it was infested, and and the problem was there was no presence at night in the area, so we had to implement curfews. And then if you're out after curfew, you, there could be problems for you. Like I'm gonna take you down. I'm gonna if. There could be a firefight, but I'm gonna ap- I'm gonna detain you and take you in. Like anybody, anybody that's out after dark, you're going in, really, because they're planting bombs everywhere. So we had to dominate the night, own the night. So the people that could possibly plant the IEDs at the landmines, they're only doing that at night. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So what did you did you ask anybody? Like what? How far did you take it when they told you guys to go out on foot and look for the landmines? Like, what did, did you ask questions? Did you? Yeah. So we had a staff sergeant out there with us who outranked me, but he was just there to authorize um, um, air support if we needed it. Um, 
so he wasn't in charge of that mission. I said, say what you want, but we're almost done with this deployment and I'm taking all my guys back. So we are not going to go and do that. Um, we are going to go and do a presence patrol in the neighborhood, make sure that nobody's getting, you know, bullied by insurgents, by Al Qaeda. And, um, we'll mess around over there, but I'm not, I'm not doing that. And none of my guys are. Um, and what, did, what, what happens if you don't do, if you refuse to do something like that? I mean, nothing happened to me, thank goodness, because uh, it was Staff Sergeant Milo, I think it was his name. Um, he covered my ass. Um, it was terrifying, though, when he grabbed me and was like, hey, because I was mouthing off on the radio. I'm like, are you oh, fucking really? kidding me? This is unbelievable. Listen to what you're telling us to do. And he grabbed me. And this guy was on the Marine Corps <laughs> wrestling team. This jacked black guy pulls me aside. Cut it out. Stop. What are you doing? And I'm skinny. I mean, I was 165 pounds soaking wet. And uh, he scared me straight right there. And I said, well, I'm not doing it. Like Just like a child. I'm like, I'm not doing it. <laughs> and he goes, do what you want. This is your patrol. Do what you want. Just cut it out on the radio. Ooh. So you could tell that he was like, yeah, I don't want to do this either. Yeah. Holy Might fuck. Might have just threw him man. under the bus. <laughs> Holy shit. Okay, so when you guys are going out at night, um, how do you guys avoid IEDs? I mean, if I, I'd rather be on foot than on in a vehicle all day. Mm -hmm. We were on foot there. Um, you just stay off of roads. Just stay off roads. Yeah, stay off of roads. If you're if you've got to cross a road, you just really need to look um, for burlap sacks or you know anything they could hide it. I mean, they were hiding IEDs and dead animals on the side of the road. Whoa, dead dogs and stuff. Yeah. Pretty, so they can be pretty fucking small then. They can. So what they do is they'll take like a, like a, an artillery round, the big shells. Yeah. And um, they'll put accelerator, so like some type of, of high-burning fuel around it with styrofoam. And the styrofoam, once that gas or whatever it is ignites, once the bomb ignites, you get shrapnel that goes everywhere. But then you have the gas that burns hot and catches the styrofoam on fire, and then it sticks to your skin. So you're literally burning alive if you get hit by it. It's so morbid. And there's dudes that literally hide out in, like, buildings and watch you and then watch where people are going, and they use their phones to call it. Yep. So anytime, anytime you leave a gate on base to go on a patrol, no matter what time of day, there's always people watching. There's always somebody watching. You are bad guys. Yep, bad guys. You are either in their binoculars, in their rifle scope. Um, there is somebody watching to alert everyone else that, that you're coming. So what we would have to do is we would embed with a larger foot patrol, and we would get dropped off to do hits or something like that, a hit. It's not a real hit. that We would hit the home, and then four or five of us would stay in the home. And most of the time it was, it was an abandoned home or something. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the unit would leave, take off in trucks. And we would sit there for a couple hours. And then when the coast was clear, we would sneak out of the house. So they wouldn't know that anybody was still out there. It was really quick. So you can't count the amount of people that went in and came out. Mm -hmm. And then the four or five of us would sneak out and then really go do the, the real hit or, you know, just observe the area. 
Mm. Uh, which is pretty wild too, because you're in such a nasty area and there's only four or five of you, a little small fire team. Yeah. Just sitting there hanging out, but it's cool. Do you guys get, when you guys go out there and like, there's a small group of you on the ground, like hitting houses and stuff, how real is it? Cause this is how it goes in the movies. There's like, usually there'll be an, a, one of your guys like in a building on a snipe with a sniper, like watching out. Is that, does that happen often? Is that real? Yeah. Yeah. We have, we have an overlook that's, that's watching. We have an angel up there that sits and, and watches. It's so, it's so weird how like that is so fascinating to people, the whole sniper aspect of it. Yeah. Like sniper stories are just so fascinating yeah. to people. Like, why do you think that is? Well, I mean, Marine Scout snipers are badass. What badass makes them different? Dudes. I mean, Marines are just a rare breed. Yeah. We eat crayons. So. <laughs> you eat crayons? <laughs> That's the big joke. <laughs> we eat crayons and we're proud of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. But like snipers, it's a weird, it's a different kind of like, it's a different mindset than being on the ground, like surrounded by a bunch of guys. It's like you're alone and you have what, I guess you have a radio and you wait for an order to, to take a shot and, and you have to be, you have to be different to be a sniper. Well, you, so it depends. Um, I mean, there are situations where snipers will sit there and, and wait for the call, but there's other situations where it's like, no, if you, if you see a guy with a rifle, like you, you take them down. They mm-hmm. they have full authorization to to shoot. Um, it's uh, yeah, that's that's a lot of a lot of responsibility and a lot of um, and it's a different. I guess it's different too because when you're a sn- let, tell me what you think about this. Like, if you're on the ground and you're raiding a house and there's a guy charging you with a knife or a fucking gun or whatever it may be, you're fucking defending yourself that's different than being removed from it a couple blocks away and being scoped in and literally blowing somebody apart yeah because you're not really there you're not necessarily you might be defending somebody else but you're not really like in that zone of like your whole body is just fucking charged yeah i mean maybe it is i don't know no i think i have so much respect for um anybody in a marksmanship role like that because you have to, yeah, I mean, you, that guy has no idea if you think about that. And it's funny because I went to, I went to, I had a, I have a friend in New York and he invited me to the first uh, red carpet premiere of um, uh, the movie on Chris Kyle, American Sniper. Yeah. And it, it actually wasn't red carpet. They said red carpet, but it was just, it was behind the scenes, not the black tie stuff. And Bradley Cooper was there. Oh, really? And he's sitting on stage and we watched the movie. Amazing. And, uh. They had a Q&A after, and I'm like, you know, I'm going to ask him a question. Screw it. Like, because my buddy's sitting here, dude, ask him something. Ask him something. You're, you're the only military guy here. So I was like, all right, screw it. I was like, you know, when I, I said, you know, Bradley, first of all, amazing movie. It's incredible. Um, I actually had the, the, um, the privilege of, of meeting Chris once in a Ford operating zone. Um, you know, just I didn't know who he was at the time or any of that. But um, anyways... I said to him, I was like, you know, I know what a sniper goes through when they when they zero in in their scope and they have to squeeze that trigger. I was like, you being a brilliant actor, did you have to put yourself in a mindset of actually convincing yourself that you're in that role and you're about to kill somebody when you squeeze that trigger and when, when you're sighting through that rifle? And he said, I 100% did. I said, well, how was that for you coming down? Because I know that you know, after I've fired at a human being and coming back to the United States after, like, I know what 
the PTSD that I get from that and the stress, I was like, is it, did you experience any level of, of anxiety after and in, in getting yourself out of that role? And he said, absolutely. He was like, it's, it's mind blowing. So I don't, I don't know what you guys experienced over there, but so imagine that if an actor has to put themselves in that kind of role, so deep into the role to convince himself that when he's looking through that, that site, he's going to take a life. Now imagine actually doing it in real life and then taking that life. I mean, the famous sniper line is reach out and touch somebody, you know, I can reach out and touch you at any time. And, um, you know, it's, it's when you think about reaching out and touching somebody like that and what that means, it's pretty wild. Yeah, man. I mean, I wonder how much it really fucks him up having to put himself mentally in that position, like removed from actually pulling the trigger and murdering somebody or killing, ending ending somebody's life, like another human life. Like, obviously there's a line there. Like you're, you're doing everything you can to be in that person's mindset, but I wonder how much it actually, how similar it actually is to the real thing. I'm sure it's not, I mean, it's definitely not the same. Yeah. But even just that, Mm. screwing with somebody well, that's why so many actors are fucked up man yeah you know well, what i mean like having to literally like do that to your brain every however many years they do movies like especially like crazy roles like the joker or something like who was the guy heath ledger who played joker yeah. in batman like oh right one. like before the movie even got released because dude that's that is that's trippy to be able to put your mind in this psych you know, whatever the actor may be, but the, in the Joker's case, it's like pure psychopath. Yeah. Like, can you imagine what it would be like to just murder tons of innocent people and have no feelings about it? Like to have no PTSD, to have no regret or remorse or anything, just like do it and completely be numb to it. No, there's so many people like that. Yeah. I think, and one of the most, one of the things I remember most about deploying in, in war was watching watching a, a young marine take a life and watching how just that moment their entire um presence just changes it's um it almost makes me emotional to think about like i, I remember quite a few times where you see this happy-go-lucky marine badass um, some of the happiest guys in my unit and they take their first life and everything changes. And to this day, they're just different people. It's, you don't have that same happy aura. You have this, you can just see the guilt. I remember, I mean, I mean, I remember first time I shot somebody, I got, I was throwing up in the middle of the night, waking up, freaking out about it. Um, but then you get over that and then you just become numb to it and you just go, yeah. Um, but I remember, uh, what was his name? It was a little guy in my unit too. He was like the, uh, he was the youngest one in the unit. I think he, I want to say he was uh, 19, 20, the smallest guy too. And one of my buddies had just gotten shot in the face. Oh, fuck. Went through here, through Donica and out here. And he was still, still going at the guy. What? So he went to tackle the guy cause he didn't see a gun. And um, these guys had just, we had just, my other, one of the other squads had just gotten in a shootout with these guys and they took off running and they murked like 
a bunch of them in one of the cars. They just pulled up on them. My boys are in the road, literally like Mighty Ducks line V, just bah, 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 nailing these dudes. And then there's three cars behind them. Those cars peel off into ditches, and then they they run. They get out of the car, and they run. And so we're hunting down the rest of them, and sure enough, they pull up in the, in the Humvees, and they see a couple of them. One goes running, and, and Z goes and tries to tackle them like this. Because if you don't see a gun, you know, you don't know if it's the same guy. You are not. You don't just shoot. A lot of people think you, it's just Marines and soldiers. Or people just running psychos. away. Yeah. No, it's no. We, we don't want to do that stuff. Right. Um, even if we talk shit before the deployment, it's that's that's just shit talking. We don't actually want to go out there and do this stuff. And so he goes to tackle him, and the dude had a Saddam Hussein uh, a pistol with the seal, the ivory handles and seal, and went like this, shot him through here, and it went out here. And he kept running after the guy, and uh, but he fell to the ground, and this young Marine comes around the Humvee, posts up, Boom, boom, boom. Two, <laughs> two to the back and one to the side of the head. Just perfect picture, perfect shots. Wow. But then watching this kid after, and I call him a kid, but that's a grown-ass man right there. Um, watching his whole demeanor change. Like, everybody was excited for him. Like, dude, you got your first kill. This is awesome. Like, bro, you freaking nailed that guy. Man, that's that's textbook. Holy shit. I mean, and, uh, but you could see it in his eyes. Like he wasn't into, I mean, he was smiling, but it was so fake. He just, just everything changed. And, and the same thing that happened to me waking up in the middle of the night after my first time having to shoot somebody, um, throwing up, I got up in the middle of the night and, uh, I went out of the, the NCO barracks and went over here to the, the, um, the junior Marine barracks and, um, I saw him on the side. It's like 3 a.m. and he's throwing up, like just squatting down by the, the wall. And um, he looked at me. I, I didn't. I didn't go over. I didn't talk to him or anything because I just could tell he didn't want that. He yeah. just needed some time. But I mean, there's some other guys too. Um, yeah, after they they took a life, it, it just your whole life changes. <sighs> Dude, that's so fucking heavy. You know, yeah. it's it's. You have to like, I would imagine the, one of the ways you have to cope with that is I know it sounds so, it sounds so horrible, especially like given the hindsight of history and the, you know, all the wars that humanity has been through to like, if you're that kid and you're in his shoes, like if you want to be able, if I'm trying to imagine how I will never even get close, but if I was trying to imagine how I could cognitively cope with that for the rest of my life like i would have to i i would imagine i would want to think of that person as subhuman or not human the person that i that i took out you know what i mean because if i think about that too much or think about that person being the same as me that's that's that hurts but if i think of that person as like who knows what the truth is about him? Like we, we know we're on a mission. You're on a mission. You took, you have your orders. You have to do this. There's no questioning anything. Like you're doing what you're doing to save your life and your, your brother's lives. But to cope with that, you, you, no matter what the fucking context is, who cares? Like that person is not a real person. That's how I could cope with it. If I, if I'm to think about it. Yeah. I mean, and that's the battle. I mean, it's, it's, 
I, I agree with you 100%. This mentality that you, you have to take to it. But then as you grow older in life, like I think war teaches you, especially those moments, empathy at another level. And um, I think you just have to, to have more empathy for yourself than than anything else. And whether they're right or we're, we're right, who's wrong, I, I don't know. And I'll never know until, you know, I die and I, I meet my maker. But while I'm on this planet, I choose to say, hey, you know, politics aside, it was my life or that person's. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just how you have to live with it. And you say, like, another thing I think I think about all the time, but I, I think about it, like, in another aspect of you see like young kids become really successful and make a lot of money at an early age, like in their teens or early twenties. It there, it does something to people that are going through the normal stages of human development from when you're born to when your, your brain stops developing. I think they scientists or researchers have found out that your brain doesn't stop actually developing until you're like in your early to mid thirties. Yeah. And you're going through there's certain things that you have to go through in life through the stages of development, growing up, like being bullied or whatever it may be to become a well-rounded human being in our society, in the context of our world that we're in today. Like there's certain things you have to go through, but there's things that can happen that could fucking alter that trajectory so hardcore. Like the greatest example that I come up with is nba players or nfl players these kids that are straight out of high school get handed millions of fucking dollars like what does that do to your mind to your ego to your fucking relationships at that young of an age compared to think of somebody who's already been through it suffered struggled been broke been fucking cheated on whatever it may be and then you finally like you're in your 30s you you've been through all this then you achieve something like i've been broke i've been nobody and now you know I can enjoy the fruits of all of this. I've made whatever it is. Like in this example, it's people making millions of dollars. Like you have the context of the rest of your life to compare it against this success. So when you take, I guess like trying to compare that with kids who are, you call them, they're men, but they're fucking in their teens or early twenties and they're doing this kind of thing that has to severely fuck with your development through the rest of your life, especially like sometimes these people are only deployed for a couple of years and then they're just back to normal life in the United States. Yeah. I, Eric church has a, a song. It came out like two years ago, stick that in your country song. And one of the verses he says is so powerful is why I love Eric church. Hope he watches this because dude's a legend, but he says in the, um, he says in the song, uh, tell that to the kid coming home from war, 23 going on 54 stick that in your country song something like that and it's true because your brain just sees things it it it's fast forward mode it's such severe trauma and you're not prepared to see it that now it's like hey you just skipped decades of your life where your brain was supposed to mature or equip itself to handle something like that i don't think anything will ever truly equip you to handle that and now all of a sudden you're supposed to backtrack and fill that gap. Right. And that's where the struggle yes. comes in big time. Yes. Um, I like, I mean, I told you yesterday, I, I was a liability when I got out and I got out because my mother and my family period went through a lot of stress that, that we say in the, in, uh, in the military, the, the toughest job 
in the Marine Corps, in my case, is either being the spouse or the mother of a, of a Marine. Because mm. um, you have to sit there, you're helpless, you're powerless, and watch your spouse go deploy to some of the most dangerous places in the world. And you, there's nothing that you, you can't just quit. You can't just say, hey, honey, why don't you get a new job? That's not going to happen, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it's also why I was single my entire time through the Marine Corps because I didn't, yeah, Marine Corps was, was my girlfriend. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's brutal. And coming out was, was harder than anything that I've ever done getting out of the Marine Corps. Um, I was a Marine operating, you know, literally walking the streets. Like I was still in war. Essentially. I was so hypervigilant. My head was on a swivel. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Um, if I saw something stupid or something fucked up, I was going to fix it. That was my plan to fix the world one asshole at a time. Um, Jesus, that's a terrible, terrible, um, mentality to have in life. Cause we've got a lot of stupid people, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, it, it, um, who knows how much, how many years have been taken off my life due to the stress and PTSD of. Um, not just war, but the Marine Corps itself. It's it's pretty tough. Yeah, I love the Marine Corps. But well, yeah, I mean, there's a, st- a statistic about how many uh, ex-Marines and SEALs like take their own lives every single day. There's like a certain amount. Yeah, twenty-two. It's twenty-two a day that take their own lives. That's that's unfathomable, man. Hey, man, I I used to hide this stuff because I, it was embarrassing. But I, if it can help somebody, that's kind of my mentality now. But I was there. I, I I was ready to take my own life, and there was a whole chain of events that that prevented me from doing so. Um, but I think there's it could be a lot higher if, it, thank God it's not. But like we need to put attention on that stuff. Yeah, man, it fucks with your brain. It, yeah. It's just it's it's not right. I mean, a lot of people talk about you know, PTSD. And I think a lot of people have kind of like a false sense of what PTSD and just sort of gloss over it. Like think, okay, you came back from war and now you have, you know, this post-traumatic stress disorder, but like, what is it to you? Like in a personal sense, like how would you describe how it affected you personally? Like, I remember you said hypervigilance was a big thing and you walked around with your head on a swivel and you were always like ready for conflict. Um, yeah. Uh, I wanted conflict badly. It's the only thing that I really knew as an adult. Um, when I was deployed, I was in a position to where if I saw something that was an injustice, I could fix it legally in any which way that I wanted. If I saw somebody look at me strangely and my intuition is telling me, hey, that's a bad person, he walks into his home, I'm going into your home and I'm going to figure out what your deal is. Mm-hmm. Because if I don't, you could be putting a bullet in my brain you know, the next day, or if, you know, I'm in a convoy, you know, vehicles, armored Humvees or MRAPs deployed and you know, we're telling, you know, a car to move out of the way and he refuses to do so. And I'm not on a schedule. I'm going to stop 
right there and I'm going to, I'm mm-hmm. going to take you out of that vehicle. I'm going to search your vehicle and then I'm going to get to know you. I'm going to write your, your info down. I'm going to figure out where you live, who you're related to, who you interact with, and I'm going to check on you. Now you've got me as a big brother and you can't do that in the civilian world. Right. And I just think Americans in general, we sit here, it's, it drives me nuts. You know, we have all these people that just shit all over our country, especially our youth right now. And it's like, okay, do we have problems in our country? Absolutely. We're not perfect. Absolutely. We have problems. But if you think that this country sucks and this is the worst place to live and, you know, um, America is just this terrible, terrible place and you haven't traveled. Mm-hmm. And I don't care if you traveled to Bali or Mexico for spring break. That's not traveling. Remove yourself from this society and go put yourself in the real world. I had somebody... I had a relative once when I was getting out of the Marine Corps. It was a, I've actually never really spoken about this, but it, um, their phone butt dialed me and I answered him like, hello, hello. And this is right when I got out of the Marine Corps and the person is telling someone else, yeah, Ryan just got out of the Marine Corps. He thinks life's going to be easy now. Oh, well, he's in the real world now. Well, guess what I did? I hung up that phone. I called the person back, this relative. And I'm like the real world, huh? The real world, says the person that's never left the country. You want to know about the real world? Let's go home of the AK-47 where kids are running around the streets with AKs and grenades and RPGs, rocket-propelled grenades. Let's go to the real world where, you know, somebody's parent is not coming home tonight because they got in the middle of a political, you know, a, a firefight due to a political war. Mm. Let's talk about that. That's the real world. Not sitting here with your cable TV, your air conditioner, drinking your good water, and, oh, you know, I got to get the new uh, Mercedes-Benz that's coming out, and this and that. No, these guys are talking about land of the car bombs. Like, America's not the real world. It is not. No. If you think you've got it tough in this country, I guarantee you, you don't. There is somebody that would kill to be in your shoes and go through the problems that you have. Yeah. Now, I validate stress. Stress is, is there. But if we think we got problems, yeah, you need to take a world tour, a real world tour. Yeah, you can see you can see the difference in attitude from people who haven't been to fucked up places for sure. You know, like not only attitude, but kind of just like perspective and, you know, how they view, you know, other groups of people or other, you know, even I mean, even when it comes to like there's so many people that just get stuck in the news cycle and they want to just like label certain countries or certain parts of the world as this or that or whatever it may be. And you don't understand the nuance of what it's actually like being there and living with those people and and trying to survive around people like that. Yeah. And honestly, like, yeah, the Marine Corps is tough and I saw a lot of things and I've dealt with a lot of trauma and depression, but I wouldn't take it back for anything in the world because having the perspective that I have now uh, makes me who I am. It makes me, Mm. I, I just think that I'm a, at least in my mind, um, I'm able to contribute positively to society and not stress over the, you know, dumb stuff that the keyboard warriors and, you know, people that obsess over the news. And it's a different time uh, now, man, the techno like the way technology advances, it's like, you know, I couldn't imagine how, how much different it would be compared to like when you first enlist enlisted. And you had to go to a library to read about Afghanistan versus now. Like, imagine if that was now. Like, if, imagine if technology was like it is now back then. And you would have had the ability to see everything. Videos, fucking people on Twitter and videos of 
you know, beheadings and shit? Like, how would that change somebody's outlook on wanting to go out there? And how much of it is propaganda, too? Like, how much of it is, because propaganda is real. You know, countries try to, you know, I know in Russia, here, everywhere in China, you know, countries try to paint a fake narrative of what's really going on and paint the other guy as the bad guy. Um, and I, you know, that had to have been so much easier before the internet. I, I mean, yeah, computers. probably. Yeah. The technology has its upsides, but it also definitely has its downfalls, its pitfalls. Um, like, I don't know how, like, I wonder how hard it would be to, to like have to send in, you think we'll ever have another war war, like a world war two, like ground, like troops going out fully armed with weapons, like shooting each other. I mean, I think we're already in it. Or we're in the beginning stages of what could become a world war. I mean, and so this talking about like Russia, Russia and Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you look at Bosnia right now; it's it's getting close to tipping off. I What's mean, going on with Bosnia? Um, it's uh, is it Bosnia and um, shoot, I'm out of the fucking loop. Man. Oh yeah, I'll send it to you later. But yeah, okay. there's they're getting ready to. It's interesting, and then but here's the thing: there's all these Instagram accounts too that are showing like, you know commercial drones the ukrainians have dropping you know mortars into um or bombs into tanks russian tanks below and people are like fuck yeah this and that it's like that is sick as shit yeah like they're those young kids they don't want to be there yeah and the even if they do tanks. they have no idea that's that's propaganda like yeah quit cheering this on i if i i don't really you know some of these guys it's like have you ever been to war because that's sick and it's offensive to me you're sitting here looking at it like it's a football game like, hell yeah. Yeah, blow that freaking T-72 up. But well, there's like, people that are also like super, I don't know how else to put it, but they're just fucking horny for that kind of stuff. Yeah. People that have never really been in combat that are just fucking sitting in front of Fox News and they're horny for war. Yeah. And, you know, the, I'm sure a lot of the, there's a lot of fucking guys who have on their own fucking will just gone to Ukraine. I don't know if they're veterans or not, but I know there's a lot of civilians, American civilians, who've just gone to Ukraine with their guns and like yeah. tried to help the Ukrainians. Yeah, everybody wants to be a gangster until it's time to do gangster shit. And then, like, I saw this this one veteran, and he came back, made this video, and posted online. Veterans don't come to here. We're in Ukraine, and it took us two weeks to get a gun. Meanwhile, all these they're giving out these Ukrainians guns, and then they only gave us ten rounds each or something like that. Don't do it. I had to sneak out of the country. It's like, well, first of all. You're not a citizen there, so get the hell out of there. And, of course, they're going to give weapons to their people before you. Right. Stay the hell out of it. It's none of your business. And that's, mm -hmm. an, in my opinion, that's an act of war. And, and I mean, <laughs> you better be careful. Yeah. that The, the laws of war uh, apply to every U.S. citizen. I know because mm -hmm. I still, you know, I've had to learn them doing what I do now. And, um, yeah, there's a difference to it. Like the tier one guys, that's a different story. If you're going out there to do that, you know what you're doing. But these these young veterans that think, like, I got to get my combat stripe now. And, you know, this. No, no, no you don't. You do that for your country. You got that? Like, mm -hmm. stay the hell out of out of it. It's mm -hmm. my opinion. But yeah. Off well, my soapbox. It's Yeah. I mean, it's also like, <laughs> it's kind of weird when to have that kind of perspective when it's what our, I mean, our government is like intervening in this thing and giving billions of dollars of fucking rockets and drones and whatever tanks mm -hmm. and all this shit to the Ukraine for a thing that 
for a purpose that we don't fully, I don't think anyone really fully grasps what it's about, but I, you know, it seems to be all about money and power and control, you know, like giving, you know, tens of billions of dollars and stuff in, in, in weaponry to a country just so, because there's the, the debt policy where it's going to become debt they owe to the United States. So they're going to owe us. So we'll have control of them. And they're like a, a mediary between us and Russia. So it's like a tug of war between this country. And like when you start like digging into it, it fucking hurts your brain trying to think about like what are the motives here? Like, yeah. like what the fuck is going on? Yeah, it's all these these elected officials and the people that that society polarizes now. It's like senators and congress nancy pelosi and all these people like they're celebrities to people it's like are you kidding me like that's why do you worship the ground that these people walk on i think most of them probably get involved in politics because they have good intentions but then i'd say almost all of them eventually that once they start getting that attention thanks to social media and money tribalism of people getting behind them yeah they, it just takes on its own. They become a monster, man. It's weird. Yeah. And I think Nancy Pelosi, she just went to like Taiwan and now like China's firing rockets, trying to scare them. And the whole Taiwan thing is weird too. Like it is that's weird. crazy. Cause I don't know much about it. I really don't know much about it. Cause I'm going to sound like an idiot trying to talk about it, but uh, let it rip. Man. It seems like, <laughs> like from what I've heard is that Taiwan has always been a part of China. And then now it's trying to seem like, like, the way the narrative is being constructed. Austin, maybe you can pull up some legitimate facts on this because I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. I'm just trying to sound like I do. But (laughs) it seems like now we're trying to like stick our foot in their business to try to escalate things so we can do the same thing with Taiwan that we did with Ukraine. Yeah, I'm not a foreign affairs officer, so I don't don't know the ins and outs, not foreign service. But but yeah, the last thing we need is another conflict going on. Yeah. And when we, it just seems like when the U.S. sticks or when the U.S. sticks their fucking foot in the door, it just creates more of a conflict and more of a fucking problem. It does. But I will say this if the United States didn't exist, I tell you right now, Taiwan would be officially China. Oh, yeah. Ukraine well, would be Russia or. Has. When did. Can you find out the history on Taiwan? Like, when was it actually. Like. Is it a country or is it a state? I don't know what the fuck it is. And was when does it? Because I know that it used to it used to be like just a part of China. Period. So I think we're the only ones that recognize Taiwan is not part of China. We're the only. You know what? I should shut up and yeah, wait until. (laughs) (laughs) No, who cares? January first, two thousand or nineteen twelve is what what happened there. okay that taiwan was founded in 1912 okay in october of 1912 resolution 2758 was passed by the un general assembly and the representatives of chiang kai-shek uh yeah. were expelled from the un and replaced by china by the prc in 1979 the united states switched recognition from taipei to beijing okay so click click that one below. It says when did Taiwan become a country? Sorry, yeah, it's right. Uh, go back one and click on when did Taiwan become a country? Up oh, right there. Okay, so it's yeah, nineteen twelve. Who knows, man? Well, let's see. Taiwan officially the Republic of China is a country. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so now China's pissed off when when people recognize Taiwan as its own country, and you know China's weird too. It's so weird. It's all so convoluted. 
and hard to understand. Yeah, it's I I um <laughs> people just I, pretend like they know what they're talking about and talk on YouTube oh, yeah. and I'm like, oh okay, I'll take that guy's point of view on it. Yeah. They say they see a little square meme mm-hmm. online that mm-hmm. says something that sounds smart and they're like shove it in people's faces. But yeah, I mean the future of war is fast. You know, it's it's gonna be weird to see what happens. You know, it's different in third world countries and places like Ukraine and where they're they're literally tanks on the ground, but like in the future, it's not going to be, there's no way it's going to be that. It's just going to be power grids and controlling, like we are controlling right now. We're, we're like with the sanctions, not letting Russia pay back their debt and starving their people, taking away Netflix and McDonald's. And like, it's, it's a weird type of fucking war. Yeah. Like it's just taking away money and taking yeah. away resources. Yeah. And who ends up suffering? It's not the yeah. people that started it. It's the, the everyday citizens, the yeah. ones that are brainwashed. Mm-hmm. It's terrible. Um, what was I going to ask? Oh, I wanted to ask you what happened to Chris Kyle. I know. I, I, I know. I don't know how he passed away. He was murdered. He was murdered yeah, by a marine. Actually, it was. Um, I don't know. There was some internet argument or something where he called out this guy for stolen valor. An internet argument. And this guy signed up. Chris Kyle had this program where he would go and take you know, um, veterans to the shooting range for PTSD. Like, let's just go shoot, man. Let's, uh-huh. you know, let's shoot around and let's, let's fire some rounds off, shoot the shit. And, and let's just talk about life. And, um, and the kid that he, you know, called out, I guess, signed up for the program. He didn't realize that that was it. And the kid ended up killing him. Just shot him. Wow. Yeah, it's terrible. Terrible stuff. Jesus Christ, man. People are fucking crazy. And especially when you add the internet onto create, you know, when you mix crazy people with the internet, it doesn't have, it's, it's never fucking good. No, no, no. Um, I want to talk about how you kind of parlayed. So h- how eventually did you parlay this whole experience and, you know, the suffering, the immense amount of suffering that, you had to deal with after um, leaving the Marine Corps. How did you f- parlay that into what you guys are doing in Africa? I have no idea. No, <laughs> <laughs> honestly, when I look back, I'm like, how the hell? Like, how the hell am I sitting here right now talking to you? Oh. How did I get here? Um, hey, Austin, can you crank the air down a little bit? Thanks, man. Am I? No, I'm just fucking. I'm. I'm. I'm warm. Um, take a hit of your salts. Oh yeah, I gotta call. You this won't fucking cool stuff. me down. This is gonna make me sweat harder, yeah, man. <laughs> that wasn't enough. Pulse alarm. Oh, you might have an addiction. Here, man. You're enjoying that way too much. Here, take one. I'm gonna I'm gonna think about it for you know what. Ah, do it. The air just turned off. Okay. Will it turn back on soon? Oh. Oh, my eyes are watering. That one was a little easier to do. The first one was straight to the brain. Yeah. Just, oh. That one's a lot easier to take. I can still smell it. <laughs> it's just strong, bro. You get used to it. You built up a, you build up a tolerance to it after a while. Yeah. So you do have a problem here then. Yeah. We, we just established yeah, that. You I'm from, t- we're from Florida. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what's really in that thing? Then? <laughs> it smells like a mo- pneumonia or ammonia. Jesus. Oh, that shit is beautiful. Brutal. 
So, um, how did I parlay immense str- uh, struggling to what I do now? Mm. <laughs> uh, so, when I got out of the Marine Corps, um, this was back in '09. Um, I got a job with the U.S. Department of State, um, assisting in diplomatic security, making sure diplomats got to where they needed to be safely, securely, all of that. And it was kind of a cool job. I mean, I'm walking around New York City. That was my. That's where I was um, based out of in a nice suit, earpiece, you know, armored vehicles, you know, in Hillary Clinton's detail. Oh um, no, shit! Like, yeah, I'm driving in her motorcade, and then you know, uh, the Attorney General, and then all of a sudden I'm in Obama's motorcade, President Obama, I should say, and like it was pretty cool at first, and then like I started, I started realizing like you know this sucks. Let like, me pause I, you real quick. Yeah. I just had a thought. Have you ever seen those photos of um, motorcades? I forget who it was. I saw a photo of it just the other day of a president walking down a street and there was a man and a, and a, and a woman there and they had fake hands. They have like – they're wearing big suits and they have like fake hands. You can tell they're not real hands. They're like rubber. And you can see that their arms are really in their jackets. You got to pull this up, Austin. Google uh, president security guards um, fake hands. That's got that's got us. That I don't. So is it Secret Service that works that is mainly surrounding like diplomats and presidents and shit like this? So Secret Service protects heads of state. Okay, so presidents. Um, uh, State Department diplomatic security protects um, foreign and domestic diplomats. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So so maybe this isn't something that you guys would have done. But you, can I you, mean, this is a long time ago. Do too, you see what I'm so. talking about? I found someone say it's not. Fake. Go to images. This would be something that you could probably figure out better than I could. There it is. Click on the one with the circles. Down, down. Nope. It had red circles down to the right, right there. Look at that. So see those guys walking? They must be Secret Service. But like, that's a bad photo. But there's photos of him and another woman, and you could tell that those are fucking rubber hands. It makes them look like they're real, but hmm. they're like it looks like they're fucking rubber. Maybe there's another. I don't know if there's another photo. Go to the one on the very left. Yeah, right there. You see that? Does that not look fake to you? Yeah, it's, like they maybe have their hands like on their guns or something in their jackets. Is like what's I mean, it's quite of? possible that they do. Um, I didn't know if you ever had if you ever saw anything like that in the real world. No, no. no okay. I've seen guys like that with massive guns and stuff, and yeah, guns in briefcases, but nothing. That's nothing you've seen before. I've never seen that. All right, anyways. bionic hands. Sorry for the tangent. No, <laughs> if if that is real, if that's a real hand. That guy's that guy should be in a circus. Yeah, for real. My God. Yeah, I mean, just look how big his jacket is. You can. T- I mean, his jacket looks. Dude, over- look at how long his finger. It's an alien, dude. Yeah, for sure. What in the hell? There's so many photos of it. People obviously have noticed that it's not. Yeah, that creeps me It out. doesn't look normal. Well, if he's a real human, man, I feel bad for him. Well, it must just be. I mean, it's it, it has to be just guns in their jackets. Just have to be ready to shoot. Ready to protect Trump. Yeah. Um, anyways, the Department of State, you're in motorcades. Hillary Clinton's motorcade, Obama's motorcade. Yeah. What is your job when you're when you're working in the motorcades? Just making sure they get to where they need to be safely. Okay. And on time. Um, so I was actually on Susan Rice's detail for a long time. She was the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. and the former national security advisor after uh, she was at the uh, 
the State Department. Okay. Um, you know, I know there's a lot of people that are, you know, because of the morning talk shows and stuff where she had said that Benghazi was was not a orchestrated attack. So people are hating on her. She took a bullet for, for somebody else. But anyways, not going there. Um, I don't think I know anything about her. Yeah, yeah. You can Google it. I'll send it to you. <laughs> you know. But anyways, she, um, she really helped me out a lot. Um, she was very inspiring to be around. She really, you know, at least in my face, it seemed like she cared. Mm. Um, and uh, so I had... This is relevant, and I'll explain in a minute. I had, um, it was, I was in the State Department for four years at the time, and this was actually, yeah, 2012, and it was one Sunday night. I had just watched Anthony Bourdain's first ever Parts Unknown on CNN. Um, I loved Anthony Bourdain. Read all his books. The dude was a legend, and rest in peace. He's one of those guys where I knew, I can remember exactly where I was when I Mm. found out that he died. Um, so I'm watching his first show is on the Israeli Palestinian conflict, which I've always been intrigued by the show ends. And, um, up next was a show about the, um, Royal family and what they, their work in Africa with the Tusk trust foundation, which is an amazing conservation organization. They do so much, um, for the preservation of African wildlife so it was about their collaboration with the Tusk Trust and what they were doing. And I was like, oh, I'm interested. Um, I'll watch it. But I, I wasn't one of those people, and I've never been one of those people, to where I, I need to see animal abuse. Because that is one of the things that will absolutely flip the insanity switch. And once that sucker's on, good luck getting it off. And um, as far as my animal welfare and animal activism was concerned, the, the only... Uh, capacity that I did it in was was photography has always been a big passion of mine hobby of mine probably the greatest photographer in the world that you don't know about I never <laughs> will I'm not a sellout so I, I choose to keep it to myself um, but all jokes aside I would use my photography skills I go to local shelters in New York City and I'd take a dog out on a walk and take pictures of it happy and enjoying life and they would post the high quality pictures on their website it improved the adoption rate of the animals. I was living in a 500 square foot apartment. I had a 125 pound rescued Rottweiler and two 25 pound rescued orange cats. So I could not fit any more animals into my apartment or I would get kicked out. How many cats was it again? Two. Two, And they're 25 pounders too. Beautiful studs. Anyways. um, I just got into cats. Funny story. I've never, I've never been like a fan of cats. For some reason, and my wife fucking loves cats, and we get we got one, and they're the coolest things they're the ever. Bomb. They're fucking amazing. We have an outdoor cat, so he go, he goes outside and roams the neighborhood at night. Nice, and like he only he shows up at the door at like seven a.m. every morning to eat, <laughs> sleeps all day, and then he's at the at the door at seven p.m. ready to go out and I'm out, yep, and terrorize the the town. <laughs> yeah, you're his servants now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're there for him. They're cool. I love cats. But yeah, my wife and I are on the board of a cat rescue, Whiskers, Utah. Um, they focus on senior cats and, and um, cats with disabilities and, and taking them out of kill shelters. And we've got two. We've got an orange munchkin cat. She's this big. No She's way. Amazing. Those things are so cool. She, she was 12 years old, duct taped in a cardboard box with two of her siblings. And she didn't get adopted out. And so we we're like, we got to take her. Holy we got to foster shit, her. So bro. we fostered her and she wasn't leaving. But and if I ever find out who the hell did that, I'm going to duct tape them in a box. <laughs> throw them in a dumpster. Yeah. And I'm going to make sure they don't get out until the garbage truck comes. 
Yeah, man, that's the worst kind of fucking person Scumbags. that can do that, dude. So I don't, I don't watch it. I did, I wouldn't look on Instagram accounts. If I saw it, it would just piss me off. And so after, after, um, you know, after Anthony Bourdain's first show, this was the most that I would say the second most pivotal point of my life happened, and that was watching this documentary on the Tusk Trust Foundation and the royal family, and. It started off great. I actually had no interest in ever going to Africa. I had somebody invite me on a safari, and I'm like, nah, dude, I'm good. Africa's cool, but I'll, I'll just watch documentaries and stuff. I want to stay in my country for a while. I'm, I'm over-traveling. And <laughs> here I am. I work good there reason. now. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I, I, what I saw was, was three just punches to the mouth. Um, metaphorically and the first was an elephant laying on a tar road an asphalt road we say tar in africa so an asphalt road in a park massive elephant no face the trunk which was probably i don't know twice the size of this table was was laying separated from the body on the road and i remember it there's brain matter and flesh and there's a, a land cruiser sitting there parked. And um, I mean, it's an elephant for God's sakes. I had no idea that poaching was going on. And I'm like, whoa. And I'm so pissed off that I'm locked in. I'm just shocked. The very next scene was park rangers laying dead face down in a field. And now it's like, oh shit, there's a human side of this. Why are these people dead? And then the third scene, this is back to back to back. The third scene was a female rhino, and it was a video, not a picture this time. And she's missing her entire nasal cavity. Like, her horn is gone. And you can see the two lines, you know, like if you were to take our, you ever see the Michael Jackson thing, cartoon? When yeah. You take, and there's the two. Same thing. And what, what had happened was is that poachers took tranquilizers off the black market. Why did they do that? Because tranquilizers, when you shoot it out of a tranquilizer gun, it doesn't go bang, so nobody hears it. They don't hear the bang. They're not alerted to poachers in the area. The rhino goes down, and now they can take their time. They don't have to worry about anybody tracking them down or, or intervening, and they, you know, it, it can really take a horn off. I've seen it done on videotape in 45 seconds. You can chop you know, that face off through the flesh and they chop it and they do it because they, they, they could do it without really fucking killing the animal, but they do it because it's quicker, right? Yeah. They can chop around the thing into yeah. their face and it's just like, now you can remove, like you said, you can remove a rhino's horn in which some places are doing as a, a preventative um, method uh, uh, to prevent poaching. Would it grow like, back? It does grow back. Oh really? It, it's just keratin. That's all it is. It's, it's what your fingernails are made are made of. Oh, it's, wow. it's hairs. Um, but what we're noticing, so we have a headquarters reserve. We have a team full-time in Africa. Um, and then we deploy training teams um, to other reserves. But this is our foothold. Our reserve has full horned rhinos. We've worked with reserves that do remove the horns. I don't have any issues with it. But what we noticed was it's, it's an alive rhino is better than, than a dead rhino, yes. whether it has a horn or no horn. Yes. However, what we're noticing is that it's affecting the mating behaviors of the animal. The male doesn't have that horn. It can't bully the rhino, the female around and get her into right. uh, mating. And so we're, we have less rhinos born. 
and it's it's mm. now it's starting to change the genetics, the behaviors yes, of yeah. the species. So that said, so what ended up happening is these people were filming her um, while they waited for veterinarians to come um, and put her down, you know, um, humanely. Mm. Um, and at first I was pissed off. I'm like, why the hell are they filming this? Like, how can you film this? And right. in hindsight, when I look back, I'm like, thank God that you filmed this and you're a hero for doing it because I can't imagine sitting there and having to pull out a camera and, and film and watch this happen. This mm. animal die a miserable death. But thank God that they had the courage to do that because I know that I'm not the only one that was inspired by that. I'm just a little slice of conservation. I'm just trying to affect my slice of what I can control. But there are other people that that had to inspire to get involved. We needed that shock moment to to wake up to this. The war, this is a world problem. It's not a an Africa problem. This is a world problem. But what what I what happened was I watched this animal die, and she had a newborn calf that was not on the film, gone in the bush, lost, scared. That baby ended up dying because needs its mother's milk. Um, and it shook me to the core. I would, I was feeling, you know, all that emotion that you bring back from war, the PTSD, which it's every strong emotion you can think of wrapped up in, well, just like Will Ferrell says, a glass jar of emotion. Mm. And you throw it all in there, you super glue it shut, and you, it's your plan is to cope with it by never having to deal with it. Um, and what happened was, I mean, that rhino essentially saved my life because that jar was shattered. I was pissed off. I was depressed. I was sad. I had anxiety. I was embarrassed, humiliated. Everything, I that animal was crying. Tears just dumping out of her eyes. Oh, my God. And I felt everything that she felt. in my, like, emotionally, I, I, she saved me as a human. I can confidently say there, there's a, uh, I will say there's a very good chance that I wouldn't be on this planet if that animal, if I hadn't seen that animal die. It was that powerful, like to the point where I want to cry right now thinking about her. And um, it, I called out of work for five days, literally back to back to back. And the special agent in charge with the U.S. Department of State called me. He's like, hey, dude, when you come back to work, I was like, ah, I don't know. I, I might be out another week. I'm just not feeling good. He goes, dude, what the hell's going on? Because, like, you haven't missed a day of work in years. And so I was like, all right, dude. Well, this is what happened. Dude, I, I wasn't sleeping at night. I was crying. I was waking up pacing the, the house. I was punching walls real smart. Whoa. Concrete brick walls in my New York City apartment. I was so angry. And, um. So he said, you need to come back to work or you're not going to have a job. Like, they're seriously going to probably fire you or put you on some other duty or whatever. And I'm like, all right, well, I'll come back to work. And I was talking to a buddy of mine, my buddy Brent Dixon, and he said, um, he was like, hey, dude. Like, I was like, dude, I think I'm going to go to Africa. Like, I'm, I got to go. I got to go see what's going on. Like, this is what they're doing. And I remember everybody else thought I was nuts. My, even my mom was like, you can't go to Africa, this and that. And she'll tell you now, I knew you were going to go to Africa. But Brent's like, hey, dude, I remember him being the first person to support me. He was just like, I believe in you in this, dude. And I can tell that you're passionate about it. So the same day I went to NYU to see this open lecture that the um, CGI director of Life of Pi was speaking. I forget his name. Mm. And he had said there was a young student 
for in the Q&A, last question. I'm sitting in the back. And she says, she says, what advice do you have for young students going into the professional world? Like, just life advice. And she go, or he says, the best advice I can ever give you, in my opinion, is that if you feel so passionately and strongly about something that it hurts right here in your gut, not, not your gut, not your chest, but Burns. right here, just between your, your rib cage, that it, like you feel a knot there, then you better act on that or you're going to regret it one day. And my biggest fear in life is not dying. It's dying with a regret. And when he said that, I'm like, that's it. I'm doing it. That is God telling me you got to go do something. I mean, dude, look at this. I get chills right now. I got mm-hmm. goosebumps. Tell me that that is not, you don't have to believe in God, but you better believe there's something there. Right. Because you, I mean, why the hell was I at NYU and at open lecture? What made me go there and why did he say that? Why did I stay till the end? Because I almost left a few times because it was boring. And when he said that, like, holy shit, I'm like, I, I, just, I just don't believe in coincidences. Right. And so I'm like, that's it. I'm doing it. But what I did do with the advice of some family, they were like, before you go to Africa, just start exploring with the U.S. Department of State. And so I asked around with Susan Rice, the uh, mm-hmm. U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. at the time, Ambassador Joseph Torcello, who I believe is the Treasury Secretary in, of Pennsylvania now. Um, I, I was really close with him. He was a, a great mentor for me. Um, I, I just asked him, hey, sir, have you heard about this? And whatever. And he said, no, I, I haven't, but let me look into it. And he actually went and looked into it. He goes, so what is it about that, that, that you're asking about? And I was like, why are we not sending all these veterans that we have that we paid billions and trillions of dollars to train, to go to war? They have the skills to go over here and counter this terrorism because it is terrorism. Up to 40% of ISIS's operations, their affiliates in Africa, up to 40%. Uh, of their operations are funded by poaching animals. And there are some people that want to say that that's debunked. Bullshit. Bullshit. That is very real. That is real. People say it's been debunked how? Uh, well, that's just a fake statistic, and we did this study and that study, and that's not how they're funded. No, you idiot. That Criminals are criminals. Yeah. Terrorists are criminals. Criminals are terrorists. The way that they fund their oper- their operations, their opportuni- they're opportunists. It's opportunity. Mm-hmm. So if they see an opportunity to go and kill an animal so they can go and terrorize people and make more money and, and push their, their extreme agenda, they're going to do it. Mm-hmm. And that is what is happening. And so I had my security <laughs> level, uh, security clearance at the time, which was top secret SCI, and they, they upped it another one so I could go into a skiff, which is a, a secured room to review very high level documents. And they actually upped my clearance so I could research this some more. They oh, pulled shit. some strings for me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so I got the, you know, the real information that I needed to see. And I'm like, hey, this is real deal. Like, what about that real information that you can divulge? was that like what what about it that, well you know you realize it was honestly it was nothing that wasn't already out there oh, okay it was just that it was officially documented in u.s government cables and Stamps, you know foreign you know, yeah. foreign nations are are giving this information saying hey yeah there is a tie between terrorism and uh poaching here mm. um but because of who you know had the information that's why it was was top secret but i mean you can find the same stuff 
you know, online, it's just not going to be, have a, you know, a government yeah. cable attached to it. So you started doing all the research you could. You knew that this is what you had to do. When you went to the NYU, who was it that was doing the talk? So sure, what did he do for uh, for Life of Pi? I think he was the director of the CGI. The, the, Dude, um, that's so funny. What a small fucking world. I, I'm good, really good friends with the cinematographer of Life of Pi. I met him filming a movie right around here called Dolphin Tail in Clearwater okay. about, a, about a dolphin they rescued with no tail, got caught in a net. And they kept it in an aquarium. And he also uh, helped produce or helped film a world famous documentary called Blood Dolphin about huh. the dolphins in Japan, uh, the Japanese yeah. fishermen who they basically they they go out and they they chase all the dolphin into this into cove, cove. Yeah. and then they just fucking spear them to death. Wasn't the, the documentary called The Cove? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Cove. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's one called Blood Dolphin and there's one called The Cove. That's my next mission in life. And they and they find like the prettiest bottlenose dolphin, and they sell them to the fucking they sell them to SeaWorld for like four hundred grand a pop, and the rest of them they just fucking stab them to death, and you'll see them like Scum. like having seizures in the water, and it's just the whole entire cove turns blood red. It's so fucked up, and the people in Japan are are fucking suffering because they're feeding them these dolphin, and the dolphin are like these open water pelagic fish. You're not supposed to eat that shit because it has so much high so high levels of mercury. It fucks with the human body, and it's not good for the human body. But they're feeding their people this dolphin. Like, even in schools, like school lunches, they're giving That's them fucking disgusting. dolphin, dude. It's so fucked yeah, up. Isn't that the kind of stuff that our government should be working I, on instead of... And like, dolphin are, like, I think they're, like, the second smartest creatures next to humans. Yeah. Yeah, they're up there. Elephants are up there, too. Yeah, elephants, too. Um, It's sick. It is. I, I just... That's the thing about humans. We are monsters. You and I sitting here, we're good people, but we're, we have a monster deep within us. Mm-hmm. Like it's scary. Like yeah, it's we, a it's a uh, it's a lot of people have a very nihilistic view of humans, um, and some aspects of it are true. It's it's I don't know how I mean, it's not a healthy way to look at it, but it's there's some elements of truth to it. You know, people say that we're just maggots eating a corpse. You know yeah. what I mean? Like the world, we're just maggots just devouring this fucking world. Yep. Yep. It's a, it's a fucking very fatalistic, nihilistic way of looking at it, but it's... It's the truth, though. There's something to it. It's the truth. So when uh, when did you decide to go finally travel to Africa? And what did you what was your mission when you first... Did you just go? Like, like I'm going to go on a safari. <laughs> or what did you do? <laughs> so... <laughs> um, no, so what I did was, thanks to Ambassador Torsella, Joseph Torsella, which I need to get a hold of him one day... Um, he connected me with several embassies of African nations and their ambassadors to the UN to discuss what their needs were. At the same time, he also connected me, like had his staff find out what the U S was doing. And I put together this proposal. There was, you know, a one pager, a three pager, an 80 pager. I worked endlessly. I loved it. I was researching, writing and, it was in that dream mode. Um, and so I started, you know, handing this to people, um, decision makers to say, Hey, does this have any, um, does this, does this hold any water? Do you, does this, have, does this have legs? Could you see this happening? Hiring veterans to go out and help and assist because I saw this as an opportunity. You know, the U S government, they're not going to go and save animals because they're government and government officials don't give a shit. Um, and governments don't have emotions, nor should they. But 
I wanted to pitch this. We have all these these guys that we paid all this money to train them, and they don't have a purpose. Mm. And I had just found my purpose, and yeah. I didn't realize it yet that that's what it was. And we we could save veterans with this and use this as an opportunity for development assistance that supports um, imp- the improvement of international you know diplomatic relations. Hey, we're gonna come over here and help you with. You know, if, if the government had to look at this, I'm doing this because I give a shit about, you know, the animals, but I'm trying to interpret this to government officials in a way that, that would benefit, you know, the government. It's like, hey, East Africa, China's got a stronghold on East Af- all of Africa, really. Why don't we go and help with animals? And maybe that'll improve our relationships elsewhere as well. And boom, done. Perfect, right? Uh-uh. No, what ended up happening was um, OES, Oceans Environmental and Scientific Affairs, I think it's what it's called, one of the many agencies within the U.S. Department of State, um, they were tasked with what the United States was going to do to help in poaching and wildlife trafficking. Because wildlife trafficking is a top five international crime. People don't realize that. Mm. Um, What the hell OES was going to do about this, I have no idea. And so I started exploring it, and then I also did a a call with... um, International narcotics and law enforcement uh, and law enforcement affairs, something like that. I, I should know the name of that. Um, it's been a long few days. Um, and they, they, they both kind of tried to get it. The only reason why they were entertaining the call, though, is because a political appointee was making it happen. And if a political appointee says do this and you're a bureaucrat, you're doing it. And so you could tell. So what ends up happening is... One, they start getting in a fight. OES is like, why are you talking to them? This is our thing. And I'm like, well, because I was told to. And number one, they're, and, and also they're law enforcement. Like, this is more of theirs. And this woman, oh, Christine, Christine, Christine. I cannot wait to meet her again. <laughs> so what ends up happening is I was told you can no longer speak to um, uh, the law enforcement agency within the State Department about it. You speak to us. This is, we're doing this. And so the guys at, uh, the guy, David, that's all I'll say from the law enforcement agency was telling me, oh, no, this isn't going to work. He had no idea about the poaching issue either. Go figure when he retires from the state department, he is now a, an advisor in counter poaching. So the asshole literally tried to steal the idea, but make a profit from it. Cause it's not a nonprofit. Um, but you know, whatever, do your thing, dude. Um, mm-hmm. If you want to exploit it, that's that's your battle. You got to deal with that when you meet your maker, not me. Um, and then, so then, what happens is OES is throwing a an open forum on with the president President Obama's advisory council on wildlife trafficking. The White House designated twelve million dollars, not a lot of money, but hey, at least it's something. At least there's a president that's but and a presidential administration is is caring because. 12 million. It's yeah. Like I said, it's better than nothing. They were going to decide, they were deciding what to do with the money and where to designate it. And there was an open forum where they were going to discuss it. And then a Q and a, I went as a private citizen from New York to DC, took the train down and I'm sitting there, put my name, Ryan Tate. I don't even think I put state department on the roster, but I signed up to ask a question and I'm sitting there and out of nowhere, Christine and assistant secretary of state walk up to me right before the Q and a, and the Assistant Secretary of State, she says to me, um, you Ryan Tate? I said, uh, yes, ma'am, I am. She goes, I see that you're going to ask a question. What are you going to ask? And I was like, I was simply just going to ask, is 
is any of this $12 million, is it going to go towards training the guys on the ground, the guys that are dying, the guys that are dying and their family members are, are being killed to protect these innocent animals? Like the rangers? Yeah, the rangers. Right. The men and women. It's not just guys. There's a lot of female rangers, a lot of freaking badass women on the front lines. And uh, I said, that's all I was going to ask. She goes, you are not allowed to ask that question. I said, ma'am, I'm here as an everyday citizen. I'm not here in a State Department capacity, and I have permission to be here. She goes, well, I'm telling you right now that if I don't have it in writing by Monday, and this is on a Friday, that you are going to end this little crusade, this little you know pipe dream that you have, that you're not going to have a job. And I, she said, do you got that? And I said, yes, ma'am, I do. I hear you. And then she turns back around and with the Christine woman, and she goes, by the way, We've done our research, and veteran skills do not translate to counterpoaching. Now you got me about ready to start throwing chairs because I'm still like, like I found my purpose now. I'm doing this, and this isn't about the animals now. This is just about you guys and your freaking egos. You are exactly what is wrong with governments mm-hmm. because you see this as an opportunity to, to bolster your career. You're not actually doing it because you give a shit about the animals or the mm-hmm. people that depend on this wildlife. That's why I'm here. I'm not here to make money. I'm not here to get some award. I could give two shits about awards. I could care less about politics in this. I'm here because I want to save these animals. I need to save these animals. Mm -hmm. I have to save these animals. And so what did I do? Instead instead (laughs) Instead of agreeing to what she did, and instead of causing a big, uh, uproar, I had my buddy traveling from overseas that works in conservation. And I told him, I said, Hey man, when they call my name, I said, I'm going to get out of here before I start a ruckus. But when they call my name, because I know they didn't take my name off the thing, go up there and ask the question on my behalf. So he gets up there and goes, hi, my name's so-and-so. I'm here on behalf of Ryan Tate, who works for the U.S. Department of State. And uh, here's his question. And he asked it. And then I went to the, the White House and told on on what uh, to Susan Rice what, what they did to me. Mm-hmm. And then on Monday, I turned in my resignation papers and said, fuck you. I'm Holy out. fuck, man. Yeah. That's badass. Yeah. That's incredible. Looking back on it, I was definitely ignorant to the fact of what I was doing. Like, but I'm so glad that I did it. Yeah. God, I'm so glad. Yeah, man. You still, you became like a fucking dissident, man. You, you fucking went against what the bureaucrats wanted you to do. Like, dude. Which is are, scary. That's scary. I mean, whether you were ignorant or not of the consequences, it's fucking scary. Well, just li- like literally, I just quit my job. Yeah. And I'm still living in New York City. <sighs> How the hell am I supposed to live? And like, like, I just, it bothers me. It's still to this day, it bothers me. Like you are evil. It, what, you, you, it's not intentional, I'm sure, but you are evil in my mind. If you try to stop something so pure like that, why, why would you do that? Mm. All because you were tasked to do. Okay, well then you take the initiative and go champion it. I don't care who champions saving rhinos or elephants or solving this this problem because it is a problem and i hate the word problem i usually call problems challenges but this is a problem go champion it then i don't give a shit just save the species for god's sakes and uh but it was liberating it felt i was like hell yeah i gotta do this now that's cool i'm doing it so i started going to africa on my own and i wasn't going out on safaris i was going with the government officials that ambassador torcella had introduced me to god what a champ without him i'm telling you without Ambassador Joseph Torcella, I wouldn't be sitting at this table right now. There's no way. He introduced me to the people. The president of Tanzania tells us, hey, 
I want my Rangers to operate like you, U.S. Marines. And I'm like, let's do this, man. Let's do it. Like, I'm getting chills right How'd now. How'd that feel? Oh, I was like, <laughs> hey, you know what Marines are? U.S. Marines? Awesome, <laughs> I was like, hell yeah. Let's, that's what I'm thinking. Let's do that because we need to save these animals. This isn't, it was terrible. And I didn't really understand how complex it was. Like, mm. you think, yeah, let's just go over there and kick some ass. We'll go Jason Bourne in the bush, which, and do some boogeyman stuff. But it's way bigger than that. You can't just go over there and, you know, it, first of all, I had no, no, um, no, uh, interest or, or, um, I, I was not going out there to kill anybody or cause harm. I just wanted to protect the animals. The last thing that you want to do, especially in conservation, is kill anybody or hurt anybody. Right. No, you had a purpose. You had like a burning yeah. purpose, a mission. Yeah. I mean, I was what having... Which you had lost after you left the Marines. Now you had it back again. Yeah. I mean, I was having dreams at night, every night, about <laughs> animals that I hadn't even seen in real life yet, other than the zoo. <laughs> I kid you not. What was it like the first time you saw one? Oh, uh, dude. I almost passed out. <laughs> yeah, man. I was just, and, oh, man, it was cool. Uh, the first time I saw elephants in real life, um, came around this corner in Tanzania, and there was two standing there, and I was blown away. And we sat there for, like, an hour. And I'm just, and the driver's like, all right, well, we got to, you know, we got to keep moving. And I'm like, no, 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 just a little longer. And anyways, we go around the corner, and there's a, over 100 elephants. <sighs> just around the corner and it's like no now we're not leaving we're staying here um but what i was doing over there was you know that's the fun side but i wanted to get out with rangers and just you know live with them see what it's like what do they go through i wanted to learn from them i wanted to observe just because i still don't know maybe my skills don't translate mm. maybe maybe that evil woman was right maybe that bureaucrat scumbag was right you know i don't know um, but the coolest thing was when I showed up and I introduced myself to Rangers and they're like, yo, you're a Marine. You served in Iraq. That's amazing. They were so well-versed on the wars and, and Marine. And now they had that, like this pride, like you're here to support us and our mission. We, that's, it's that important. You know about this all the way in the United States. Yeah, I do. And now all of a sudden these guys are charged up, ready to roll. Wow, what man, I can't even imagine like be like Africa other than maybe I don't know, Australia, but I don't even know if Australia comes close. But like being in Africa, especially in the parts of Africa that you're in, it's one of maybe two places in the world that you literally have to be worried about being eaten by a fucking animal, like eaten alive by a fucking animal. Like there's so many yeah. man eating animals there. And you're surrounded by them. Like, so, what the fuck, man? So they, <laughs> everything he either wants to in eat the water you. and on land. Oh yeah, yeah. Don't stay the hell out of the water. <laughs> everything he either wants to eat you, uh, screw you, eat you, <laughs> or, or both. both. <laughs> yep, that's what they say. I could have said that in a different way. Yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> what the fuck, man? What kind of animals are going to fuck you and eat you? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I've never been in this situation, but Jesus Christ. Could you imagine you know, I think it's being more of a... fucking molested by a rhino <laughs> or a, a lion? <laughs> you surf out there? 
I don't surf anymore because I've had surgery in my hands. Oh, I grew yeah. up surfing. Yeah, we but, talked about um, that yesterday. We've got a guy on our team, Connor. Um, Connor rips it, and he's a Florida boy. He's from the other coast, and uh, he's got some badass surfboard. He, he's got a buddy in, he's a in veteran? Thailand. Yeah, he's an Army veteran from Thailand that did a custom custom rhino boards for him. Mm. Like, drew them on there and stuff. They're lost boards, I think. They're mm-hmm. Almerics. And so he's got them out there. But, yeah, our headquarters reserve is, like, two hour, hour and a half from J Bay. That's so sick. Yeah. yeah. That's so sick. You're not catching me in that water. <laughs> we'll be in the helicopters going to the reserve, and, and you'll see a massive great white shark just sitting there, and the tail is just right off the shore. How often are there uh, great white attack? Great, they're not often, right? I mean, I think it was last October <clears throat> when I was – uh, there when one happened. I wasn't at J Bay. I was at our reserve. But mm. yeah, some guy got chomped. And then they closed the beach. And it's like, it's not really going to do anything because they're always there. Yeah, they're always there. Yeah. The, the fucked up thing about the white sharks is that when they bite you, you're, you're going to bleed out. That's, oh, you're that's, that's the, the bites are so devastating. They, there's actually more shark bites, I think, in New Smyrna Beach, Florida than anywhere on Earth. Yeah, my wife was just little. surfing there because her mother lives there. And I'm like, please stay out of the water, sweetie. <laughs> she always tells me, don't do anything stupid in Africa. And I'm like, you were literally in the water or in the water the same day that somebody got bit. Why do you need to surf yeah. there of all places? No, well, yeah. We go please there go to Daytona. Mm-hmm. Like, no, well, they're in Daytona, up, too. They're on both sides. They are. But the more bites happen up there. By the inlet. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, I grew up surfing there. Yeah, they're so, everywhere, man. I, uh, we'll be fucking surfing, and there'll be just little black tips hydroplaning right across, yeah. right in front of us, everywhere, man. They're just, they're just eating bait, yeah. and, they'll, and the only time they'll, they'll grab you by accident sometimes, and and uh, people will go to the hospital, but they're just getting a few stitches. Luckily, they're not like life altering wounds like you get in South Africa. I had a guy here a couple of months ago who uh, is from South Africa, <clears throat> I think Durban, and. Um, he does these crazy fucking ice swims. Like he swims from land to one of the islands out there off of the south, southern tip, off of the Cape. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, um, um, the Cape Hope over there. Yeah, um, yeah. So he'll swim, but he'll have two boats, one boat on each side of him. And he'll swim like in a Speedo all the way to the island and back. Dude's a psycho. Why? Because he thinks it's like, you know, he's pushing pushing himself you know farther than he can go like pushing the human body and seeing how far he can push himself and where that takes him you know i'm sure you getting into some interesting stuff you're friends with that guy yeah 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 man he, they did it he talked about he also did a crazy thing where they went to russia they went to like uh siberia they did a crazy fucking ice swim in the middle of si- siberia in a frozen <laughs> lake it's like everyday life for people from siberia yeah. Yeah, they're just fucking wasted. They just drink vodka yeah. and swim in ice water. Yeah. It'd be fun. But yeah, dude, fucking fucking Africa. There's I don't think I can't think of any other place where there's more uh man eating creatures. No, there's not. There's it's the only place. What a I mean, fucking life. Yeah. Africa is the last real continent on well, between the Amazon and, and Africa. Oh yeah, the Amazon too. Yeah. yeah. Think about that. That's the lungs of, of the world when that's dissipating as well. What, um, so when you first went to Africa, the first couple of times you went or whatever, you started working with the government right away. I did. Yeah. And how did they sort of help you set up camp there? Well, it was, the nice thing was that I had government protection, but then what I realized was I was, I got bit by corruption quite a few times. Um, but uh, not quite a few times, but one big time. Um, I mean, I was living in government housing, driving government vehicles. I had a, uh, brand new 
government land cruiser that got bashed. It literally had like 800 kilometers on it and a freaking bull elephant and musk. He was oh. in high testosterone period is what musk is for those that don't know. But yeah, he driver got too close. He reared back and right in the side. And I had to explain that one. Apparently it's my fault, even though the driver was, I told him not to get that close. And he ended up rolling a car behind us, like a little hatchback, like 20 times. Like it was a ball. Unbelievable. People lived. I don't know how, but, um, so yeah, I had, um, government rifles. I checked them out of the armory just for my own protection. Um, but I was going out embedded. I would go in as essentially a spy and I would act as a, um, the assistant for some rich American billionaire or international billionaire. And I would do it with the, the oversight of the government. I would do small illegal, um, wildlife buys. So I would buy like snake skins or, leopard skin things like that and that would build the trust up and then once we got to a certain level all right hey now i need some ivory you got any ivory and then the next thing you know you're buying ivory and as soon as you buy it boom park rangers and police hit the building and they do a takedown they arrest you and everybody else that way it doesn't look like okay uh, i can't do it anymore because my cover's been been blown on that but yeah um how long did that last um i was doing that like a year and a half i want to say Almost two years. I was doing undercover stuff here and there. Um, but, uh, you know, we were taking down some really nasty people. We took down in 36 hours. We assisted and empowered the Rangers to do it. We were on the patrols. We would only jump in and help in these takedowns when we saw a potential, um, you know, safety threat, um, which these things happen. And um, we took down, park rangers took down, the criminal network responsible for 18,000 elephant deaths in one year. At the time, we thought it was 10,000. We talked to the parliament members, and they were like, actually, it's more like 18,000. It could be even more than that. And we took them down in 36 hours. Nobody hurt. Nobody killed. Nothing. Wow. We were taking them out of their, their beds at night through the windows. Yeah, I remember taking a couple guys out of their bedroom window while their wives were asleep next to them at like three in the morning and they take them out and they would, the Rangers cover their mouth real quick oh and uh, the wife wouldn't even wake up. Yeah. It's sad that you have to do it. I mean, but like it is, and sad. these are scumbags. You know, there are some poach poachers that are poor guys that are exploited by, you know, these, these bigger networks, but do I, do I have empathy for them? Yes, but I have more empathy for the animals, there's only 300,000, 350,000 elephants left. They're on the, you know, they're, they're coming back thanks to a lot of, you know, amazing conservation groups, not just Vet Paul, but, but there's only 20,000 white rhinos, only 5,000 black rhinos left. I have more empathy for the animals. Mm. And when my mom said, Hey, why yeah. do you have to do this? Why are you doing this and risking your life to do this? I said, Hey, listen, I'm only one of 8 billion people on this planet. How many of those animals are left? I'm expendable. Right. You know, do you look at it that way? Do you have, do you, I mean, is that kind of, I mean, we talked earlier about the kind of, uh, that nihilistic view of, of humans on earth. They're being like, we're, there's so many fucking people on earth and human nature, especially when there's something that happens to humans, when you put them in a situation of desperation, when it comes to resources and money and feeding their kids, um, well, they'll do, they'll do the worst things when they're desperate yeah humans will yeah so have you kind of 
accepted the fact or have you come to terms with the fact that you value uh, the lives of these animals over the lives of some of the humans that are there? I know it sounds very, very dark, but when you look at it from a certain perspective, you can see the argument for it and you can see how it actually does in that context when you have a population of 8 billion people and there's a certain amount of them that are just committing these atrocities like like murdering these innocent beings that have no control they they don't know what the fuck's going on you're you're not only, like you're murdering whether it be a, a, a rhino or an elephant and then their kid their their offspring are going to be lost and probably die um i can see it from the perspective like fuck these human beings I value the elephant's lives over those human beings' lives. I can see that perspective. Yeah, I guess. So in a sense, yes. I mean, personally speaking, not as the president of Vet Paul, 100%. That said, who am I as this white American to come in there and, and tell them how to live their lives? It's, it's none of my business. The biggest, the biggest issue in the world, I mean, we're, we're in the middle of, of the next mass extinction right now. People don't realize it. We are. We're losing species, not just in Africa, but all over the world. And it's not because of poaching. It's because not, and it's because we're taking their land. It's habitat loss. So yes, I do. And here's the thing. Humans are just, we're just another animal species on this planet. And so ultimately, if we really want to save ourselves, then we need to have empathy for our race in the sense to where we're not taking that land we are valuing it and being stewards of this planet because if we don't become stewards and we start to lose too many of these keystone species, the effect that that will have on this massive ecosystem that we call Earth, mm-hmm. it'll be the detriment of humans. Yes. So we have to save, the, by saving these species, we are saving ourselves. If we can't save these species, we can't save ourselves. Right. Right. Every species is important. Here's a good Here's a good example. We reintroduced black rhinos into a region that they had gone extinct in in over 80 years ago, that region's um, flora and fauna was so imbalanced. The plants, so many plant species went extinct. Black rhinos are grazer or browsers. So they have this lip and they pick out of thorny bushes and they eat that. White rhinos are grazers. Well, that population of white rhinos was on the decline because there's no grass there. Why is there no grass? Because the bushes are overgrown. If we introduce black rhinos, they start mowing that down. Sun gets to the soil grass is growing and now the white rhino population is coming up and now you have new plant species well not new but plant species that went extinct years ago that are coming back right think about that isn't that wild yeah that is crazy that is crazy how we can manipulate the environment in a good way we have we have um cheetah we reintroduced into areas that they had gone extinct in years ago we had a serious warthog problem in that area we still do in a sense, but it's not as bad anymore that we've reintroduced them because they're mowing down cheetah or cheetah or mowing down warthog. How do you feel about hunters that go over there and pay like hundreds of thousands of dollars for tags to kill elephants? Okay. If, or if, I don't know if there's any other animals besides elephants that they kill. Yeah. I mean, they, they do antelope, uh, buffalo. I mean, shoot, they have tags for rhinos in some places. Listen, I'm not a hunter. Um, this is going to sound corny as hell, at least to me, but once you've hunted man, at least in my mind, it's just I have no interest in shooting something that, that doesn't shoot back. Interesting. 
Um, I just think it's, it's just not me. It's never been my thing. However, um, now if you shoot, if you're going to hunt an elephant or a rhino or an endangered species, like you're, you're a piece of shit. And it, I don't care the amount of money that you're throwing up on the table. I tell you what, tell you what, that amount of money you hunt me, I'll take one bullet. You can have as many as you want. Hunt me. If you win, you keep your money and you can go shoot the rhino or the elephant. If I win and I get you, that money goes to conservation. Those animals live. That's uh-huh. that's what I would say to any douchebag that wants to go yeah. out and shoot an elephant or rhino. What, now, what is it about those people? I don't get it. Now, listen, this is a controversial topic, but yeah. hunters with antelope species, it's the same thing. Like every reserve in South Africa... Every healthy ecosystem has hunting to a certain level. Even if they say they don't have hunting, they're part of a greater ecosystem. So they get away with saying, no hunting in this reserve. You're part of greater Kruger. Kruger manages the hunting. Okay. So you, you, don't, you just don't do that. It's, it's a lie. Um, and I know several reserves like that. And I'll probably get people, keyboard warriors, hitting me up here shortly when, to, when this year. Is, That's not true. This, okay. All right. Well, you're telling me. I, I My team is there full time. You went on a safari to this place and paid a mm. shit ton of money and listen to what people tell you and mm. think it's true anyways it's the same thing as hunting deer in our national parks our government regulates it so does theirs if you do not balance that population of impala they will mow down the their what, what they eat the plants that they eat at a level that it'll affect the other plants and the other food that the bigger species eat Mm-hmm. With different gestation periods, it takes 18 months for a black or a black or white rhino to give birth. 22 to 24 months for an for an elephant. Wow, We're talking really? like nine nine weeks and 16 weeks for some you know antelope species. Yeah, you got. An, I'm sorry, yeah. humans. We like to have this idea. We we want to have our our cake and eat it too. Yeah, we're so overly emotional. It's like no, we you can't. This isn't Burger King. You can't have it your way every time. Mm-hmm. Tough decisions have to be made, and scientists come in and dictate it. We were in a position, a, a reserve we worked at, biologists came in and said, hey, you have you have 5,000 too many impala. If, if you don't hunt or cull, and culling, for those that don't know, is you round up the animals, you just shoot just them just in the slaughter head. slaughter them, yeah. It's one of the most traumatizing things I've ever seen. They do that with sharks in some places. Yeah, that's disgusting. Because the surfers yeah. want to surf, catch waves. Yeah, and that, and that not, get, not get bit. <laughs> Unbelievable. But like, okay, well, so you don't want us, you don't want hunters to come in and do this. So then if they don't, if they don't come in and, and take, you know, some of these animals, harvest these animals, then guess who's got to do it? I got to do it. I don't want to do it. So, all right, then you come over here and you do it. You yeah. know everything. Yeah. You mm-hmm. come, Listen, I don't like it either. I don't like it. But the real problem is humans. Yeah. If we stop you know, destroying this planet and we don't have to do this stuff. Yeah. So what is it though about those fucking trophy? What, what is it about people who want to go out? It's, it's always these people with like insane amounts of money, like rich people. They want to go like, I'm going to take my son out to Africa and we're going to get an elephant tag and we're going to pose in front of a picture of yeah. this big dead elephant. Like, like what? Like, I don't understand. Like, what is it about those people that want to do that? And they'll pay so much money and they'll, they'll justify it. Yeah, they'll justify it. Like we paid, you know, t- hundreds of thousands of dollars for this, and we fed the village, and, and that means that you care. No, well, if you really cared, then you just pay that money to the reserve and have a veterinarian go and put that animal. Because in many cases, if it's an elephant, it's one that's 
Not many. I don't know if it's many cases, but oh, they some pick cases one that's, that's old, where the teeth right? are rotting okay. and they they're dying a slow death. Which still, I why not just pay a vet to put it down humanely instead of shooting it? I don't know. But if you actually give a shit, why don't you just donate the money? I don't know. Yeah, but if there are these, if there are these guys with these sick fantasies, some sick fucking billionaire and his kid want to come hunt an elephant and and have a trophy just to pow what what do they do with those elephants do they just they just kill them do, do you know i don't know if i don't i don't know i've never looked into it but do they use it do they like mount their heads as, as trophies or like what do they if just take that idea in out of you know in a its own little thought bubble and say like there's this elephant that's dying but this guy's gonna pay us a million dollars and he's gonna you know are we're going to be able to pay this money to our rangers? Our rangers are going to make $50,000 a year now to kill this elephant that's not going to live another year. Yeah, most of that money is just going into some, you know, rich guy's pocket, rich African guy's pocket. It's really? not going to the rangers. Really? In some cases, like hunting in general now, hunting does, you know, whether people want to believe it or not, and if you can't come to the table and look at facts, then, you know, I don't want to talk to you, but mm-hmm. the, the facts are is that that um, and I'm not talking about elephant and rhino hunting or endangered species hunting like the dentist that that shot uh, Cecil the lion. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not talking about that stuff, but antelope hunting in general. I mean, that that's arguably it contributes more funding to, to African wildlife conservation than any than does it, it really? definitely does with ecotourism because ecotourism also. And I'm a big fan of ecotourism. We have our own lodge where people can pay and come and stay. It's mm-hmm. it's not like high end five star, but it's it's yeah. really cool and unique. But ecotourism has this huge carbon footprint mm-hmm. with it. So for one guy that comes over with his son and wants to, you know, um, take a, an antelope like a kudu or something, because the scientists deem that that's appropriate here for a tag, the population supports it. He pays a boatload of money there, whereas in order to get the same amount of money that he paid, you've got to have like 50 guests come and stay and take flights from America, drive cars and all this food and all of that just to stay at a lodge. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, some of these reserves have, you know, staffs of 400 to 1,000 people. They got to pay those bills. And if they don't, that land will be used for pineapples Mm. or something else, which is not good. No. You know? Mm Mm-hmm. It's a complex issue, man. It yeah, really is. and there's people that just want to like reconnect with, like they want to they want to reconnect with like their primal in their primal selves, their primal mode. Yeah. They want to be out in the sticks and hunt. And there and you know there is people that can make arguments about not towards elephants or lions, but towards other types of like deer or or elk or antelopes or whatever saying like eating a wild animal is way better for you than eating fucking yeah. factory farmed. Oh, the worst thing in the world is buying meat off a shelf. Yeah. yeah. You know? So I do, I mean, I respect it. Mm-hmm. Like I, I respect the, that argument. I mean, it's mm-hmm. real. Yeah. But yeah, man, it's, um, it's no, it's not an easy fix. It's a lot more complex than just going on social media. And how do the Rangers get paid? It depends on the reserve. And but. what what are the issues with the rangers getting paid? Because is it is it real that some of the rangers and poachers will kind of like switch, like trade shoes, trade positions? Like a ranger will 
maybe not get paid and have to poach someone, you know, poach an animal on the weekend just to feed, feed his family and then go back to being a ranger. Like how big is that problem in reality? Yeah. I don't buy the, uh, the feeding the family thing in many cases. There are some cases, but you're talking about places like South Africa has like a unemployment rate of like 40%. And that's a third. It's in the thirties. And, but you know, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, those places, they have it like 50, 60% unemployment rate. So right. it's like, you know, if you have a job, that's one thing. It's the greed and it's the ego that drives it. So, I mean, the the top general or top dog uh, ranger at Kruger National Park was busted with with rhino horn in his trunk. Guy won so many awards. Um, but the people that pay rangers, like government rangers, they get paid by the government. And then private parks, which a lot of people don't realize this, um, private parks in South Africa... Um, I believe the number is 35% of rhinos are in private reserves. Hmm. Um, they have actually private farmers cause they call, uh, they call reserves and, and private reserves in South Africa. They call them, um, farms. Mm-hmm. So farmers, um, but these private reserves have saved 90% of, of antelope species because of, of, um, of um, trading game and the sale and, and trade of game. Um, so they pay their park rangers, these private citizens. Mm-hmm. And when you start a park as a private citizen, especially in South Africa, you put a target on your back. You don't do it because it's some glorious job and you're making all this money. Uh, many of those people have other businesses that support those reserves. Mm-hmm. Um, they're doing it because they're passionate about it. And that's their heritage and they want to save these species, but you put your life in danger the moment you put a rhino or an elephant or, or an endangered species on your property. Um, and how specifically? Well, I mean, there, there have been farm attacks, what they call them and where poaching rings will raid somebody's home, the owner of the reserves home, um, tie them up, take all their stuff and shoot them in the head when they leave or something like that. They'll open the safe, like in those cases where, where um, most most rhino horn, if if it's harvested the proper way, which we discussed is yeah. not, you know, it's not good for the species in general, but it is preventative. Um, some people will keep it in a safe in their home mm. until they can get it to a bank to put it in a vaulted safe. Um, and those are all registered by the government, by the way. Um, so they'll if they hear that there's a dehorning happen, they'll go and hit that house and 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 raid it and take everything. Wow. Yeah. It's brutal. Um, what is the prevalence of the terrorists? We were talking about earlier, but the um, Boko Haram. Yeah. In, uh, I think it's Northern Africa. How widespread are they and how, what is their relationship to poaching? I know you, um, said, I know you said that poaching funds them. Yeah. So Boko Haram, especially Al Shabaab. Well, I won't say especially because what they, is Al Shabab another terrorist? Group? Yeah, okay. they they both have are ISIS affiliates. Okay, um, they were around before ISIS officially started, but they pledge allegiance to to ISIS. Right, right, right. They like teamed up with them. Yeah, exactly. They are huge bullies. They will go in and mow down villages overnight. You want to see? I mean, they rape, pillage, murder. I mean, light whole villages on fire just for the fuck of it. It is so screwed up. It is it is pure evil. Yeah, we were talking about it yesterday. They'll yeah. they'll kill anybody. It doesn't matter your religion. They will wreck your world. 
um, Al Shabab, when I was in, uh, I had just come back from Kenya. I was in Tanzania when this happened. Um, they did um, the mall shooting in Nairobi where they, they terrorized the mall um, until some badass British sass dude went in with his own kit and rifle and just started mowing them down. They were castrating men in the middle of the mall. You can see it on security footage. Castrating men, just terrorizing people. So look at that. These terrorists are poaching these incredible species, elephants, rhinos, the animals that we had on baby blankets growing up, poaching them to extinction so they can make money to then go and terrorize humans and push an extreme evil agenda. It's wild. Yeah, that is the worst kind of person. That's yeah. the worst kind of thing that could happen in any yeah. race or I culture. Have, I have personally tracked them for weeks these little followed cells them. followed them or tried to catch them. You know, you're trying to, you're, you're putting the puzzle together. Yeah. We're getting evidence that they either went this way or this way to this city or that city. And you're trying to get their next move to cut them off. I've personally done that with some of my, my veterans. We have had, um, we have had targets on our head and been alerted to it by governments, bounties, because we were affecting their bottom line. If you affect a criminal's bottom line, I mean, they, they got nothing to lose except money, and that's that's all that matters to them, mm. whatever agenda they have. So do you guys plan, that, like, are you guys literally, like, back at headquarters, like, tracking these people and tracking each cell and trying to, like, figure out the next move? Are you, I mean, are you, like, strategizing this, like, a war against these guys and, and trying to stay one step ahead of where they are? Do you guys have people on the inside work that are that are close to them that are reporting back to you? We How do have informants, yes. You do. We do. Uh, when we do these operations, um, whether or not we have one going on right now, I can't tell you. But uh, Obviously. But I have to kill you. <laughs> um, Which you could very easily do. No, I don't know about that. <laughs> um, but uh, no, we, we, we don't do that necessarily at our headquarters facility. We do that on the fly. I mean, we're a very small team. We as a nonprofit, in my opinion, do the most with the least, just like the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. Um we we don't have all this fancy technology. Well, we'd love to have it, yeah. But mm. um, no, we do a lot on a on a bootstrap budget, and um, and I think that's a testament to to our character as an organization. But no, we we uh, we put these investigations together on the fly while we're moving and going after these guys. I mean, we're on the road nonstop. You don't sleep. Um, you uh, we do have informants that and they're locals. And they work tirelessly. These are Africans that that give a damn. But um, I'll say this though: our biggest success in counter poaching, though, is not the the flashy stuff. I mean, we've had people label us as mercenaries. That's not what we are at all. My God, like that's that's it's not how you fix this. What we do that has the most effect is by taking subject matter experts from around the world, different trades, whether it's crocheting a blanket to making stuffed animals to, um, you know, cups and, and, you know, household goods and items. And we bring them in. It's a hand up approach, not a handout. And we teach the locals gardening, for instance, they're gardening so much now that they can sell their produce to other locals instead of spending all their money to take a taxi two hours to the grocery store and wasting it all there. 
They're growing their own food, feeding their own family and selling their goods locally and making money. It's a one health approach. Mm. So it's like, and, and it takes time, you know, but now these people, they could care less about poaching because they know that, Hey, number one, there's some badass rangers on that reserve that were trained by us war veterans or international war veterans. Cause we do have international, we've got an Italian guy over there now. He's awesome. Um, but anyways, they, they know like, Hey, it's not worth going in there. I'm going to work with these guys. This is cool. Like we've got a relationship. They're helping us. Like you're watching people from two opposite ends of the planet, way different backgrounds come together for one common purpose. Mm. And that's to save the ecosystem that we consider ourselves a part of. That's super cool, man. Yeah. That's super fucking cool. What, um, what wasn't there a story when you guys were doing something and you saw some farmers like on the side of the road or some guys like chopping, yeah, yeah, like yeah. cutting grass? What were they doing? And you so, inadvertently busted a whole group of poachers. So we didn't actually bust them. It was the Rangers that we were instructing. So Lynn Westover Jr. is one of my best friends. He's I'm going to say he's five, six on a good day, <laughs> but he is a badass with a good pair of shoes. Marine <laughs> Force Recon Scout Sniper. He's probably 140 pounds soaking wet. Well, now he's buck 50 now. He likes Coors Light. Uh, <laughs> tatted up everywhere. And the nicest guy, but he's brilliant. You should have him on your show because he's like, what he teaches is incredible. So it's human terrain mapping and behavior pattern recognition. Okay. We're the only ones in Africa that teach it. And it's, he was our director of operations, but his company is doing well now that, that COVID is over and these lockdowns. So he's back to his company, SLC squared, which is six layer concepts mm. and consulting. And they teach you how to think like a criminal and pick up different um, behavior patterns. So okay. they're teaching it to police departments all over this country. And it's a good thing. Every, it teaches you how to work smarter, not harder and yeah. how to mitigate risk and um, mitigate an, a, a potential for escalation of force without, you know, before it happens. Right. So it's like, Hey, you're coming to me. Let's say you're a police officer or you're, let's say you're a park ranger and I'm a local. Well, I know that you just got trained by these vet paw guys, these veterans, these war veterans. Now I'm, I'm really worried about you. Like I'm nervous. You're talking to me. If I get pulled over out here, I don't care what anybody says. I'm nervous too. It's not just, you know, everybody gets nervous and you get pulled over by a cop. It's an authoritative figure. So Danny park ranger comes up to me and you're talking to me. I don't have anything to hide, but I'm nervous. Like, I'm just like, wow, shit, man. Oh, last time, last time a ranger talked to me, he beat my ass or something for no reason. Um, which we also, that's a whole other topic. We've seen that happen and we have extinguished that, really? that type of behavior. Just beating the shit out of them. Oh, park rangers. Yeah. Because, you know, poachers kill their families and mm -hmm. things like that. Long story short, I decide, you know what? I'm in f uh, fight or flight mode. I'm flying. I'm going. And I take off running. I take off running because this guy's being aggressive towards me. Does that mean that Danny, the park ranger, should turn and shoot me in the back? No. God, no. But I'm able to talk to him beforehand and figure out, hey, let me, let me see if this guy does have something to hide based on his behavior patterns. Is he rubbing the back of his neck? That means his histamines are up you know, different things that he's doing. If his histamines are up, he's definitely hiding something. Is he nervous because he's hiding something or because I'm an authoritative figure? And then let's calm that down. Let's bring it down. Let's find common interest and let's, let's establish who you are and what you're really doing. So the first time that uh, Lynn was the lead instructor here, 
was teaching this on the very first day of a five-day course. And we sent the park rangers to the local lodge to grab lunch after the first portion, the morning portion. On the way there, based on what they learned in the course, they saw these guys um, cutting grass on the side of the road, which is not abnormal. They got to feed their their cattle. There were three guys. I think it was three. And what they uh, what ended up happening is they were picking up cues. The park rangers picking up their behavior cues. They turned the vehicle around, came back, started interviewing the guys, kept them there. All of a sudden, there's five more guys on the other side of the fence. They had just stashed their machetes and firearms. They were getting ready to go poach rhinos. No shit. And the park rangers came back so excited. We did what you said. We did what what you taught us, and it worked. It worked. They didn't have to chase them in the bush or anything. Right. These guys just straight up admitted it. Bro. Didn't have to shoot them. Didn't have to beat them up. Nope. <clears throat> they didn't get the the park rangers didn't get beat up or shot. Yeah. It was yeah. a win win. Yeah, it's interesting how much more you can accomplish when you can understand uh, the way that the other person is thinking, or mm-hmm. the way they, they like anticipate what the opponent or the aggre- or whoever it is, the uh, adversary, anticipate what they're going to do next, anticipate their way of thinking, yep. everything else. I mean, even with uh, you know, I know it's a big part of of war is being able to integrate with the community and the locals and being able to have open communication with people, understand how they think, understand their culture, their way of life, instead of just like being in your own bubble and, you know, us versus them, no communication because then you don't really understand anything. And communication is that got to be the most important part of resolving any conflict, especially conflicts that are fucking as broad as that. These people are the ones that suffer at the end of the day. Yeah. It's not the soldier, no matter which side that you're on. It's the people that suffer the most. Do they? Does everybody there speak English? Or there? What's the what's the main language in those countries? It depends. I mean, South Africa has 11, 11. 11 national languages, recognized languages. That's just the ones that are official. Most people do. Or there's there's a member of the tribe that speaks English. A lot of my guys speak the language. I I do not retain language very well what is the second most prevalent language what is the most prevalent language there uh i would say english afrikaans Uh, english afrikaans okay yeah yeah zulu zulu um yeah you've got um got all kinds of languages yeah it depends on the tribe and the area yeah yeah i wonder i always wonder how much language barriers have to do with shit like that you know what i mean yeah i mean it's one thing when you're when you're with a person face to face, even if they don't speak the same same language, you understand them. You understand mm-hmm. their intent. But when it comes to like, you know, people on another continent, you know, making calls about things, on on a complete, you know, making calls to people that are commander commander troops on another continent that they're in control of, there's not only the barrier of space and time and everything else there's the language barrier too and then you're adding a whole nother element you don't really fucking know what these people are thinking or what their intent is maybe you know by you know by and large what their objectives are what like the military objectives are but the people you don't even you don't understand the people until you're like really really there with your feet on the ground you know yep and i wonder how much of that language barrier has to do with conflict not just in africa but everywhere it's an interesting, interesting idea. You know, even if you think, it, yeah. if you think about like Russia and, and, and Ukraine, you know what I mean? Like we don't understand Russian. We don't know how to speak yeah. Russian or Ukrainian. Like I wonder what these people, what they're really 
what what they're really believe or what they're really being told because all all I know is what fucking is translation to mean in English on fucking the internet. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. So I always think about like the difference between that compared to being on the ground actually talking to these people because no matter what you're told anywhere, if you're told something by whether you see it on TV or hear it on a podcast, in my experience, actually being there first person talking to people who live there, it's always different. It's yeah. always different being yeah. there in person. Yeah. I mean, hey, at, at the end of the day, no matter the language, no matter the frustrations or the, no matter the conflict that you're in, you always just got to treat people with respect. Yeah. And ha- and and try to have a some level of empathy, mm-hmm. a healthy one, because there are second and third order effects that that come with conflict that mm-hmm. that you know make things bigger than they should be. You, know, you kill someone, like if I go out there and I, you know, God forbid, I have to shoot somebody, and I never ever want to be in that position again. And that that man may have, he's got a wife, a brother, a son a dad, a mom, uncles, aunts. Now you've got a, a whole bunch of enemies. They don't care if he's wrong or right. Yeah. In most cases, all they know is you just killed somebody that they loved. Yes. And that they needed. Yes. And so now they're, they're gunning for you. Yes, man. That's something that people don't, oh, I don't think a lot of people think about too, is you have like everyone says you have to have empathy and you should like empathy is important. You have to understand the other person and where they're at. But if you, if somebody on in your group killed their kid, they don't have any fucking empathy for you or anybody. If somebody did anything to my kid, I have no empathy. I'm going to slaughter a whole village. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like, like, that's real. That's real in a lot of places. A lot of these poor places. A lot of, mm-hmm. I'm sure it's real in Iraq. You were there. You would know. Yeah. People who had their fucking kids murdered. That's the worst thing you can do to anybody. Like you're gonna change somebody. You're gonna turn somebody into a killing machine. Yeah. Yep. And can you blame them? No. I mean, you can't. You're a dad. Yeah. But you're on the other side of it too. You're on the you're on the other side of it. Like some of the people you were fighting. Those people were in that position, but you're also in a position where you're not going to get killed. You're not going to get killed. Your guys aren't going to get killed. When you're in that conflict, you, it is what it is. You can't sit there and say, Oh, we got to have empathy. It's you're in a fucking live or die situation. Yep. And these guys in Africa are, I don't know. I don't know what their situation is, but I know that a lot of them are desperate. Desperation breeds evil. Mm -hmm. Like you said, it, not necessarily evil in all cases, but it breeds, you know, it, it breeds. Desperation breeds crime. Mm-hmm. And yep. terrorism. we talked about that yesterday yeah. too was, was, uh, uh, well, Guinea Bissau, the country yeah. in Northern <laughs> Africa. Yeah. Um, yep. we talked about that. There's a country in Northern Africa called Guinea Bissau. That is essentially a cartel with a flag. The, the, um, it's so corrupted that the head of the Navy was literally like spearheading all of the cartels trafficking coke and cocaine into Africa, into that mm-hmm. country. It was all run by cartel. All the heads of every department there were in government was corrupted by the cartel. And, uh, you know, that just goes to show you the poorest countries are going to be the ones that are corrupted the most. And there's a lot of poor countries in Africa. Yep. That's why, hey, ecotourism and one health approach is the way to go. Mm-hmm. And people don't need to do this stuff. Yeah. 
how how much of like the China influence do you see personally? Because like yeah. I watched a documentary the other day that showed like how China's invested millions of dollars in every single country except for like one. They're building roads, they're building bridges, they're ports, building port, yeah, ports, um, embassies. They're building, yeah. they're fucking dumping so much money in Africa. How much of that like do you see when you're there? Um, I mean, it's not really in my face a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, East Africa was in my face a lot or whenever I'm there. Um, it's, I mean, it, they're driving, I mean, they're driving poaching hands down and that's not racist to say that, Hey, China is the reason that elephants are, are going extinct. And it is, um, they're the buyers. Well, they're the, a lot of the 90% of the, the world's kingpins. ivory, 90% of the world's ivory is consumed by Chinese mm-hmm. citizens. But now if you say that too much in public, you're all of a sudden a racist. Really? Staying facts. Who oh, said that? Somebody called us. <laughs> That is so, so fucking Oh, yeah. Dumb. And then, like, when the COVID thing happened, that just bringing up the idea that it could have been because of a wet market and the, the trading. Oh, now we're finding out that there is a high pro- There It could be. Who knows? There are diseases that come from these places. I'm not saying that that's where it came from. Mm-hmm. But you bring up that idea in conversation, and now you're a, what do you call it, the Z, um, xenophobe. xenophobe. Yeah. It's like, okay, so... <laughs> Anyways, I'm here to save animals. I could give two shits about your feelings. Right. Uh, it's all about intent. I don't intend to offend anybody, but it's the fact. Mm-hmm. It's ancient uh, Chinese medicinal um, medicine says that rhino horn can cure cancer and uh, erectile dysfunction and all mm-hmm. kinds of stuff. Yeah. Like, that is it. And if you can't accept that, then, you know, you need to do some soul searching because it's it's this, you know, tiptoeing around people's feelings that is is destroying our, our planet right now, you know. But I'll say that, yeah, China is a big, big reason, probably arguably the biggest reason that these these animals are going extinct because they're exploiting desperation. with These desperate communities. Like, I get it, have empathy for, you know, the xenophobia thing, and, and that's wrong in, you know, when people intend it to be that way, but why can't you have more empathy for the people mm-hmm. on the ground in Africa whose heritage and future are being destroyed yeah. by these bullshit, proven to be bullshit uh, philosophies? What is being done to curb the the, Demand? the, the kingpins that are buying the, that are fueling this, that are purchasing all this, uh, all these rhino horns and all these elephant tusks. Yeah, you know, and there's so there's an amazing organization called Wild Aid, and and there's this uh, the CEO of Wild Aid. I'm not sure if he's still the CEO. I think he is. He said this years ago, and I totally agree with it. He's like, you can't just anti poach your way out of this problem. He's 100 percent right. Yeah, you, you have can't to hit the root of it. I mean, we're just trying to slow the bleeding. We're mm-hmm. striving to stop the bleeding. Will we stop it? I don't. The only thing that's going to stop it is is changing the culture, and educating people. And Wild Aid does that. Um, so there are amazing NGOs that are trying to influence policies in these companies in these countries. The problem is the enforcement. So like China will come to the table and say, "Yeah, you can no longer do this or that," and they'll temporarily suspend the trade of ivory or rhino horn, whatever it may be. And everybody gets super gung ho about it at first, but the guys that have been doing you know, conservation work for many years longer than I have. Um, you can tell they don't get super excited because they're like, yeah, we'll see if they enforce it. See how long this lasts. Mm-hmm. The way to do it is, is you got to educate people. 
you've got to edu educate the younger cultures and generations coming up. Mm. You can't change a culture overnight. You definitely can't change a culture in Asia as a white American man. I can't do that. Yeah. That's going to make them want to go and poach. Yeah. But no, there, there are some a amazing NGOs like wild aid that I mentioned that, that are out there doing that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but while they're doing that, we focus on our slice and that's, Hey, yeah. we're going to be that muscle that yeah. comes in, works with the community and we're going to risk our lives, put our lives on the line. I gear, I'll tell you right now. And I say this with full confidence that not a, a, every single veteran that I've ever deployed to Africa and that we have on the ground now would give their life for not just an elephant or a rhino, but any animal if they had to do that. Just like they sacrificed for the, or were willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for their brothers and sisters in war, they are now doing that for these animals. At the beginning of COVID, I said to each one of them, hey guys, um, Lynn Westover, our former director of operations and I, we're prepared to come over there and hold it down. If you guys need to come home and support your families, we totally understand. I just, um, please give me an answer um, by uh, Friday. I think it's on a Wednesday. Mm -hmm. And right there on the call, every single one of them said, absolutely not. I'm not going home. Wow. These animals are my livelihood. They are my everything. They are my purpose. And I could not live. We, we cannot live with ourselves if knowing that we went home to be with family and one of these animals dies. Mm -hmm. That's power, man. Yeah, definitely. That's purpose. That's pure. You can't argue with that. Yeah, man. You, uh, how cool is it that, I mean, it's very rare when people are able to find something in life that like it, it hits every parallel, every value. It lines up with all of your values. And not only does it like repair trauma and like, patch holes in you as a human but it also helps other people too not only that but you get to do cool fucking shit like save animals go to yeah. africa and like travel and do all that kind of stuff but you were you were able to when you're able to repair a part of your life that was suffering and be able to do something badass and help other people you literally like lined up all these things that you can do simultaneously that also helps other people like you're, you have one mission that's you now your job that is fucking doing so much cool shit and you love it. That's so rare for people to be able to find, especially somebody who's had to deal with what you had to deal with coming back from war. Like the most 22 people a day, you said, yeah. are killing themselves and you've been able to literally turn your fucking life around and change other people's lives. Like just for a normal person who didn't have to deal with the anxiety and the depression of, of dealing with trauma and war. Most people can't figure that out anyways. It's rare that people can figure out something like that, but you were able to do it. And it, that's fucking cool. It's rare that people are able to do that. Listen, man, I'm, I don't make the money that I used to. Uh, you know, my wife and I do well because we live within our means and we just appreciate it every day that we have on this planet, this beautiful gift of life that we have. We don't take anything for granted. And, you know, there are people that have a lot more than we do. But I guarantee you we are among the happiest people on the planet. And it's stressful what I do. I don't have the fun job on the ground anymore. But you know what? It is an absolute honor. And it is a, such a blessing that God's given me this ability to help not just animals but, but veterans as well. If I could deploy every single good veteran, and I'm not talking about guys that just – were 
on SEAL Team 2000 or, you know, Ricky Recon. I'm, I'm talking about guys that need this and mm-hmm. want to do this for the right reasons, men and women. If I could deploy every single one of them, I, I would because they deserve it. And it's my mission now. I mean, there have been times where I sat there and I'm like, this is so hard. Yeah. This is so hard. I, babe, I don't think I can do this anymore. And my wife's like, you're not quitting. I know you're not. And I, I'll never quit this. This is my life. And it's just, um, I wish more people followed their intuition. Because your intuition is not just, uh, your gut's not just telling you something. That's your brain saying, hey, you need to do this. Yeah. And if they did that, you'd see a lot more happiness on this planet. That doesn't mean do something stupid like, oh, my intuition's telling me that I need to go start a new Kool-Aid brand or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, yeah. but hey, do it with the right reasons and just just keep going. It's rare, man. It's a very yeah. it's a very uh it's very inspiring. Where uh tell people where they can find out about Vetpaw and like find your videos, your website, how they can support you. Um sure. how can people donate to it or how how are you guys funded? Uh, so we're a hundred percent a nonprofit. We don't e- we don't receive uh, federal uh, government money, foreign or domestic. We'd love to at some point, um, but I take pride in that. Um, this is that Paul is only here because people have donated a penny to, you know, a thousand dollars or more. You know, we're I, it's not just Ryan Tate doing this. It's the veterans on the ground, but it's not just them and me. It's it's the people that give a shit about this. So you can go to vetpaw.org, V-E-T-P-A-W.org. Uh, we have a donate page. You can donate stock. You can um, donate gear and equipment. We need uh, uniforms for rangers, any camo uniforms, good condition, obviously. We need new boots for rangers. We need um, rifle scopes, night vision, thermal. We need vehicles, trucks so badly right now. I need to get six new vehicles. They cost like... <laughs> Yeah, what kind of trucks do you guys use again? Well, we've been using Forerunners or Four Tuners, <laughs> and we just Americanized them and threw good tires and suspension on them. But they're soccer mom trucks, so those mm. chassis aren't reinforced and they All break right. in time. We need Land Cruisers. In order to get the proper Land Cruiser we need, it's eighty thousand dollars. What my guys can do with that Land Cruiser is incredible, incredible. There's, we can protect so many more animals and land. It, it, we need vehicles. You can follow us on uh, VetPaul, at VetPaul, on Twitter. Facebook uh, is just VetPaul. And then uh, Instagram is at VetPaul. We got some cool videos there. Trying to get our YouTube up and going here soon. So You guys uh, have a YouTube channel? We do, but it's not it's not yeah. where it needs to be. We just, we're, we're an international organization 24-7, and we've got such a small team. So it'll take time, but we'll get there. Cool, man. So, well, you got to come to Africa. Yes. Me and Julian are going to come to Africa if I can talk my wife into letting me go. <laughs> and you can you can pay to come out and stay in our, our small farmhouse lodge, too. It's really cheap. Okay. 100% of the profits go towards uh, our operations. So you spend time with the veterans. Very exclusive. You don't run into tourists or anything like that. And you're incredibly safe. Safer than we are sitting right here. Yeah, that's one of the biggest things I always yeah. think about Africa. Like, A, am I going to get eaten? B, do no. I have to, like, have an armed security? <laughs> Nothing is going to mate with you, I promise. Unless <laughs> your wife comes, that's the That's reassuring. <laughs> and uh, you don't have to pay anything. You've done enough for us. Thank you for this privilege and opportunity, man. It means the world. So Absolutely, you are, you're an angel to us, brother. Thank you, Ryan. I greatly appreciate you and everything you're doing. Super grateful.